Your move, creep. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. The only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord. Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. All right, guys. So we just had a banger episode with Scream. Really happy with how that turned out. Mm -hmm. Really great discussion. Like, we really got into the nitty gritty of it. It's such a fun movie to watch and to talk about. And it's weird. I actually had a dream of that ghost face was chasing me because <laughs> I've, I've been listening to the episode and I had a dream and he stabbed me in my back, like in my, like kind of in my hips uh-huh. and it woke me up and I couldn't go back to sleep because I was scared. Dude, that's like the opening to uh, a Wes Craven movie or something. Right? Like you're dreaming of a horror film and mm-hmm. you just, uh, it, it scared me, but it's, but I like it though. I like it. And I'm glad that the the movie was good and that it left a positive impression on me. Um, yeah. And I am very excited about this other one because this is another classic. Now, obviously, this movie and Scream are very different classics, but this is nonetheless. Yeah, I, think, like, I feel like they're they're both like really good movies. And I, I feel like this movie is is part of that, like best movies ever made from like cinephiles, you know, but mm-hmm. like I don't know how much you can like say how much better Casablanca is than Scream. I feel like, you know, if people said Casablanca was their favorite movie of all time, it's like, oh, yeah, that's an acceptable choice. But if somebody said Scream, that's kind of like, oh, really? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think some of that just comes from the snootiness of some film people that's like, well, Citizen Kane is the real, is my favorite film, which I'm sure it is to some people, but that's kind of what it comes across as. But But I think that movie is also really good. And I think there's like the, the snooty film stuff and then there's like the fun film stuff and mm-hmm. i i want to break the barriers down i'm like nah they're all good both of those movies both these movies are really good and, yeah, and they're absolutely. good for different reasons yes and obviously this movie we're going to be talking about today is in a very different genre from a very different time period yes but i mean i think both i think general audiences could say that these are both considered classics like if you're saying mm-hmm. like this movie's a classic and screams a classic like i don't think a lot of people are going to give you a lot of pushback. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about this. I, I've seen this movie. I want to revisit it. And I really want to see, all right, how good is this movie really? And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's really good. Like, it actually is good. But I want to see, why why is it good? Because it's been a minute since I've seen it. Same. Austin, what movie are we going to be watching today? Today, we are going to be watching Casablanca from 1942. At least that's when it was released originally, and then it was wide released in 1943. You said you've seen this film before. I have seen this film before. Okay, so this is one we've both seen. Talk to us about when you first watched it. Watched it, if you remember. Um, I I feel like this was when I was like really getting into movies. Like, like I think movies are something that everybody watches uh, for fun, you know. But like, I started to really, really get into movies how they were made, what they were about, why, what the significant movies were and everything. Like I, that was like the beginning of my like 
my love for the, the, the media. And I remember you always hear about Casablanca being one of the best movies of all time. So I, I watched Casablanca with that. Um, that was what made me watch it, basically. And I remember not really like understanding some of the things like historical context for like the world that this film came out in back in 1943 or 42. Uh, but there was still some stuff in it that was like really suspenseful. And like, it still made me feel things it made me feel sad sometimes. And there are some like really great lines and like good, like, yeah, get them moments, P particularly, particularly the ending, I think. It's like one of those like it's not really a twist, but it's like I don't know how to explain it, but it, it made me feel something. It's I think that a lot of people think these black and white movies are just boring and for for old people, but like no, nah, there's still some good stuff in them, and they still make you feel if you're willing to look past the the four three ratio and the the black and white color scheme. Absolutely, I I definitely thought like that when I was in. Uh, or, or in their, my early age, you know, if something was in black and white, I didn't want it because it was artsy, it was boring, it was old. We talked about this in Star Wars, how future generations are going to go back to those original trilogy films and kind of be like, "Ew, this looks weird. Like, why does this not mm -hmm. look as good?" I mean, that's always going to happen. But if you do, if you're able to suspend your disbelief, or you're able to just accept the technical limitations that these films had, like, yeah, you'll be able to walk out enjoying a lot of them. I was, the, I was the same way. And I first watched this movie in high school, junior year. Because um, that was roughly when I was getting into film. So, like, I really got into film. This is such a classic, douchey, film bro kind of entry. <laughs> but I, I got in with Pulp Fiction, which I still love. Mm -hmm. I the, the movie's great, but it's just so stereotypical, right? Right. And Dude, I remember Pulp Fiction like being a movie that I really wanted to watch, but because it was rated R, my dad would never let me watch it. So I, mm. every time I would see a Pulp Fiction reference, it's like, oh, I can't wait to watch Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I was always confused by it. I was like, who's this woman? Which I was referring to Uma Thurman when she was on the VHS cassette cover. Mm -hmm. It's like, who's this woman? Like, what's this movie about? And I watched it. It's like, oh, wow, this is something. This is awoken something in me. Yeah. And uh, so this was roughly around high school. And then my third year, I really started getting into actually watching movies and like looking at them or trying to look at them more critically. And I had my U.S. history teacher. Her name was Marcusini. Um, And she was like really into old classic Hollywood. Right. She had like movie posters, a, a bunch of movies that like I know were really popular, but I had never seen. One of them was Jaws. And the other was like Casablanca. And she had a few up there. She actually showed us a lot of good movies that year. Like The Time of Our Lives. Uh, we watched, obviously, Schindler's List. Oh, I remember uh, watching Schindler's List in high school as well. Oh, yeah. That was a required viewing. That and Saving Private Ryan. Uh, she really showed us a lot. I think she, her and my other history teacher for my sophomore year, Miss, Miss Pack, they like showed us, both of them showed us like a lot of good movies mm -hmm. and i think that just kind of further pushed my love for cinema it's like wow like and these were movies that i wasn't previously familiar with miss pack showed us a film called the lost battalion which was like a made for tv movie about world war one set during world war one and it's mm -hmm. incredible like i still love that movie i bought the dvd of it and ms marcassini 
you know, I told her I'd never seen Jaws. She let me borrow the DVD, watched <laughs> it, loved it. I was like, hey, what else do you have? And she's like, have you seen Casablanca? I was like, no. So she let me borrow the DVD. And like, it was incredible. I loved it. I was, and we, one of my favorite things to do was like stay in during lunch and like talk to her about the movies and oh, stuff. That's yeah, cute. it was, it was because <laughs> it was just like, oh, we're just talking about movies and this is nice. Mm-hmm. And I'm having, you know, um, mm-hmm. so there was, so there was that angle and it just happened throughout the whole year. And like, yeah, I think, I think my history teachers, Ms. Pack and Mark Sini were like, really instrumental in like getting me into film a lot more and like having these movies readily available and showing me like, Oh, there's so much out there. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. And I got to see this because of her and yeah, she was talking to me about the history of it and like, all right, here's, here's why the movie was so good. And like all these different things. And it was just really fascinating because she was a U.S. history teacher mm-hmm. who loved the movies but when she analyzed them, it was very historical, like her perspective, right? Like right. she was referring to like all the different policies and like all the different things that went into the movie. Kind of like she was like, Jaws is considered one of the first blockbusters for this and this reason. I was like, that's really cool. Like the way she explained it made history really fun. These films are like live, almost like living history, right? Like we can watch them at any time in any place almost and be instantly put back in the year that that it was made. But we might not have all the context from the film itself to really appreciate what it meant. Like, like when we did scream, like there was a lot of references there and now everything has references and the referencing, the constant reference of of this movie or this thing can be kind of tiresome. So you mentioned it when we did scream that like you felt that all the references were kind of annoying, but I'm like, yeah, but back then, movies didn't do that. This was yeah. a, one of the first ones to do that. I think when you're criti- crit- critiquing movies or looking into them, the histor- historical aspects matter to varying degrees, but you should look into them because they could say things about about the time period, what they were, kind of societally, like culturally, like politically, or what it meant about the film industry as a whole. You know, I mean, you could look at right what's happening right now in the industry and say that because of Marvel's growing popularity, you could talk about the need for different studios to have their own cinematic universes, which which was a shift from having the standalone trilogy, you know, like the Nolan, the the uh, the Tim Burton Batman, the would have been trilogy. You know, mm-hmm. there was a shift, and maybe fifty years from now, you know, people will be talking about this era like that or god knows what else yeah it can only enrich the experience which is hopefully what we do on the podcast it's why you like listening to us because we do that stuff for for you i don't know maybe one of the reasons (laughs) i I like to think that people stay because of our plucky because of our back and forth because of Mm -hmm. our our chemistry yeah something (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so the last time i saw this i mean i, I think i was in uh 2000 2009 2010 i haven't seen it since then so it's been roughly 13 14 years give or take wow. it's been a minute um and so i'm definitely curious to go back and see all right how do, how how have my feelings changed for this film and if they haven't why all right and then uh, we we probably should do a little bit of research on the era to to find out like why this film is so significant 
to refresh everyone's memories or maybe to learn because I don't remember. I don't remember all the things. I just know that there's something about when it came out, why it, why it's so significant. Um, so I will be curious to see that part when th- that part of the research when we get there. Should we go to 1943? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's let's time travel to 1943 to see the top grossing movies in North America uh, because this movie is so old. There's not a lot of information uh, about the the box office that we have access to. Um, But in 1943, the highest grossing movie in North America was This Army, uh, which made $19 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and then number two was For Whom the Bell Tolls. For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, that's, how, that's how old we are. Like, when we hear that, we think of Metallica. Yes. <laughs> and and so, I'm sure some younger listeners out there are like, what the hell was he singing there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. A great song. This is bringing um, back so many high school memories. <laughs> Yeah, I think the first Metallica song I heard was Enter Sandman. And I was like, damn. Oh, that that's the go-to, you know? Because it's so distinct. It <laughs> sound, I mean, it sounds unique, that intro. And once it mm-hmm. kicks in... I was like, damn, my life has changed. Uh-huh. You know, I was at Six Flags when they opened uh-huh. X2. The, the roller coaster X... X or <laughs> no, it, not the X, but it, okay. no, it is the X2. Okay. And uh, and they they were playing Enter the Sand Enter the Sand Enter Sandman or Enter the Sandman Enter Sandman Enter Sandman Sorry, and they had it in the background while the roller coaster ran, and it was the coolest thing ever. And I had already <laughs> heard that song before then, but then going through that ride, listening to it again, I was just like, "Oh shit, this is so cool!" Oh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, number three. The Song of Bernadette. And number four, Casablanca. And there is a huge difference in the amount of money that these two movies made. Like number three, Song of Bernadette, 12 million. And then number four, Casablanca, with 5 million. Um, number five, A Guy Named Joe. Number six, Girl Crazy. Number seven, Thousands Cheer. Number eight, To the Shores of Tripoli. And number nine, Jitterbugs. Wow. Yeah, I know none of these movies besides Casablanca. Yeah, same. <laughs> I'm I'm very that is kind of a blind spot that I personally have is with old classic Hollywood. I still mm-hmm. need to like go back and really really digest a lot of the the films from that era cuz there's just I have a, a huge blind spot about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And like whenever I listen to like Brandon talk about it, like mm-hmm. Brandon was uh was a guest host that we had for our Blues Brothers episode. He has his own podcast, Cinenation. He's a, a huge like film scholar. Like he he's yes. like a, he knows all the history and stuff. Dude, we should have got him for this episode, but he's probably yeah. busy. <laughs> oh yeah, like he's very knowledgeable about like old Hollywood and stuff, and he he knows a lot about the actors, kind of what they were going through at the time. And I mean, talking to him, it was like very apparent. And I was like, oh, wow, I don't know shit compared to this dude when it comes to this particular era. Like, he is just so above it. And that is always one of my regrets. Like, I do wish I could just, like, 
be motivated enough to co- just go and through this whole air and just like, all right, let me watch this and this and this and this and this and this, you know? Well, we can, we can always do that. That's for on this show. Like every year we yeah. can go back and look at one of those old classic Hollywood films. Like I think um, last year we went to uh, Robin Shaw. Uh, Oscar Mishaw. Oscar Mishaw. Within our gates. Within our gates. Yes. Yeah. Like that was a really eye opening episode. Mm hmm. I think that was a really good movie too. Yeah, absolutely. Was, it was suspenseful. Like all the things, everything that Scream made us feel like the suspense and well, not everything that Scream made us feel, but like the suspense, like how you position the camera, how you light stuff, the the story, like that's, that's suspense. And if you can still feel it in these old movies, like it's, it's still a good movie, you know? Well, the, the thing about within our gates that really got to me was you could see the ambition that Oscar had. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I think there are certain regards that even we were talking about that he wasn't able to totally like he like, you know, his ambition kind of reached out of his grasp a little bit. But I mean, look, man, it was a way different time period, especially yeah. for black people. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this man, he he had to do a lot to get financing. Right. And even yeah. there were movie theaters that were saying we are not going to play this movie because you are black. You know, yeah. So with that, when it, when we watched Within Our Gates, I couldn't help but wonder, like, what if we lived in a different era, where these filmmakers had all the access and equipment that were given to other people? Because mm-hmm. he his ambition was wide. Yeah, he he made film after film after film after film, and I just can't help but wonder if there was a better restoration process, if there was a better exhibition process for black filmmakers, especially. Like, man, I just can't. I just felt like. There was a cap put on what this man could do, you mm-hmm. know, and within our gates was was good, was good. And I was like, man, I wish, you know, there are certain things here that just don't totally work. But if he had the ability to to actually have, light things. Yeah. And to like have like a world class like acting troupe under his belt, you know, or to like have the ability to do like 40 takes because you didn't hit the door hard enough or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And man, you can't help but wonder just like what could have been, mm-hmm. you know, um, that and, was, that was a super eye opening episode and movie. And that's the fun part of the fun part of going back to these old movies. Cause there's, there's always so many stories about how they were made. Like the, the stuff that happens now that's being filmed now, nobody wants to really talk about it because the movie's still, you know, in theaters and it's on DVD. Like the, the best stories come out years and years later. <laughs> you know? Once yeah. the people who made it are, are no longer with us and everyone, you know, is not trying to protect the rest of their career or whatever. It's just, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about that too. I'm curious to kind of examine this movie from that lens as well. Just kind of like, what were the resources that they had? Because this is a Warner Brothers picture, but mm-hmm. and, and these are big stars. But I've got my college film history book. I'm sure it mentions Casablanca. I'll finally be able to like open it up and read a little bit about it. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, how can we watch Casablanca? Oh, it's probably on. I believe it is on HBO Max. If you Hold still on. have HBO Max, it's. I think it's on there because, as you mentioned, it was a Warner Brothers film and they're trying to put all their stuff on there. It is. Okay. So Casablanca is on HBO Max. We're going to watch it there. And then we're going to come back with some research about kind of the 
the era that this film was released in, maybe some like really fun behind the scenes stuff, and then talk about how the movie makes us feel today in 2023. How old is this movie? 60? This movie's 80 years old? No, no, it's not 60 years old. No, no, 60. dude, it's 100. It's not 100. Wait. We're not in 2042. No. Ah, shoot. Wait. No, it's 80 years. <laughs> it's it's 80, 80 years. 80 years old. Yeah. I still think yeah. we're in 2000 something. Like yeah. in the in the early 2000s. So my math is I always forget to add the 20. Then I get all uh what's the word? Existential. <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm old. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, okay, hold on. Casablanca. Yeah, so Casablanca is celebrating its 80th anniversary, or it's celebrated its an, its 80th anniversary mm-hmm. back in January. Obviously, we're a few months late, but we're decided, hey, let's give it a shot. 80, 80 years old, man. Damn, we just missed the anniversary. That's okay. It's all good. I'm I'm still excited to go back. Yeah, and this is going to give people a reason to go back and rewatch it. Yes, and if you don't, we're going to talk to you all about it at, in the rest of the episode, too. But it, I think these episodes work better if you watch. I don't know. I can, I've only had the one experience of watching it and listening to the episode when we're editing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, all right. So, with that, we will see you in one minute. gin joints in all the towns in all the world she walks into mine what's that you're playing oh just a little something of my own oh stop it you know what i want to hear no don't you played it for her you play it for me well i don't think i can remember if she can stand it i can play it yes boss Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. We have just finished watching 1942's Casablanca. One of the greatest films of all time, according to a bunch of film nerds. But it's, you know what? It is still, it's still really good. It's still a really, really good movie. It's funny because you, this is one of those movies that's like the Godfather, Citizen K. Like people will like say, this is one of the greatest films of all time. And sometimes you go in and it's like, all right, we'll see. Uh, But I think we've gone two for two, like the Godfather and Casablanca. Like I really like these movies. I think they've aged well, mm-hmm. and I I thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie. I was thoroughly entertained. I could see why people would go on to say stuff like that, you know. Now, you know, I I would I don't know if it's the greatest film of all time, but I think it's a really really good movie. Definitely, uh, it's a great one movie. of the greatest. I would say. Sometimes I think those lists are just kind of like you shouldn't really rank them in terms of like what's the best. Cause it's hard to say what is the best out of mm-hmm. all the films ever made. Like how can you say this one is the best? You know, well, we have a tent, we have a tendency to do that. 
we and do by because, we I mean people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we like lists because they're they're yes. they're fun. And we're gonna do it ourselves on our Patreon. We're gonna have like a tier list, but um we I think it's important to like for at least for us, like we're gonna it's a personalized thing. So it's like mine versus yours. It's not like these are the best Marvel movies of all time, these are the best uh, Star Wars movies of all time, etc. Whatever, you know. I definitely think if you're gonna make a list of like a hundred great movies of the greatest movies probably should include Casablanca. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think it's held up very well. There's uh, really a few things haven't aged that well, but really it's nothing egregious or nothing that totally takes me out of it. It's kind of like Scream, which was our last episode, which I haven't listened to. Go check it out. It's great. I love it. But, you know, I kind of had some nitpicks about it, which even I acknowledge, like, these are nitpicks. Um, mm-hmm. Because as a whole, the film has aged well. And really, it just comes to my own personal taste. Some things with Casablanca, I could see people having an issue with. But of the time, I mean, this this movie was made 80 years ago, right? It's yeah. this year, 2023. It's celebrating its 80th anniversary. It's aged pretty damn well, you know? And this won the Best Picture Academy Award along with uh, Best Screenplay and uh, Best Director. And I see it, and I'm like, yeah. I I agree. Yeah. Now I haven't seen the other <laughs> films that were nominated, but but like I think of the, of the films that we listed in the top ten episodes or the top ten films of that year, I never heard of any of the other ones. But yeah. Casablanca, I have heard of, and I've heard all the a lot of like the famous lines before I even watched the film. Like mm-hmm. this film mattered to a lot of people f- f- since eighty years since it it like. Uh, it came out like even when watching it with Leanna, she was like, oh, that's where that line comes from. <laughs> yeah. No. And I was talking to a friend uh, recently and I was saying I like watching the Academy Awards. They don't because they think that most of the it's political and a lot of the films that win don't deserve it. And I, I still stand by that. But I think I watch it because it's entertaining. I like seeing movies. I like seeing a show about movies. But I was like, I don't take it personally when. The films I like don't win Best Picture or anything because number one, I didn't make the damn thing. <laughs> also, two, like all of those movies are probably really good movies. Most yeah, of them, most yeah, of they, them are really good movies. Yeah, they they are good. And two, in the end of the day, the thing that will really test a movie's excellence is time. Time mm-hmm. is like the real Academy Award because, like you said, we named ten of the top earning films of that of that year, nineteen forty two, nineteen forty three. We are not, I don't know any other ones, and neither do you, yet we are still talking about Casablanca. And if you go up to the other people, you're like, do you know what Casablanca is? Chances are most people are going to refer to the movie rather than the actual (laughs) place. Now, what does that say about our education system? Well, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, like people will refer to this movie. So I, I think that's a testament to the quality of the film. Now, I do think there is an aspect of film nerds being film nerds and saying, this movie's great, and people just kind of agreeing with it. Yeah. Without actually having seen the film. But Then, then you have people who are like, well, you're wrong, and I'm going to look for reasons why you're wrong. And it's like, so, well, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, we're arguing about a film from 80 years ago that is not really insulting, and it's pretty damn good. So what are yeah. we really... <laughs> What are we really arguing about? But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's worth watching. If you haven't, you can watch it on HBO Max. It is streaming. Mm-hmm. They've got some really cool behind the scenes stuff on YouTube and also some of the some of the behind the scenes stories. 
not for this film, but for other projects like for Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman on HBO Max. I definitely recommend checking those out because they're really cool. It kind of contextualizes like these actors' lives and yeah. this point in their career. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think it's worth watching, especially if you have an HBO Max account, which I mean, we all do. <laughs> House of the Dragon season two is coming up. Last of Us season two. Succession season four is happening right now. Oh my god, do you work for HBO Max? Nah, nah, I'm just a, I'm just a fanboy. <laughs> I wish they would pay us to endorse their product, but, you know, that's what the Patreon is for, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I also second that, like, it's a great movie to go back to, and if you feel intimidated by black and white movies or whatever, I, I think it's still something that, if you like movies, maybe go see one of those movies that is like supposed to be like really good. One of the greatest movies of all time. Cause I think it, this one is a little bit more accessible than citizen Kane and God, yes. the Godfather. You know, it's not like three hours long. It's not actively trying to make you uncomfortable for parts of the movie, but I, I still think those movies are really good, but I think Casablanca is like easier to watch. It's not that long. <laughs> it's, it's pretty short. Honestly, without credits, it's like an hour and 35. N- not even that. It's like an hour, an hour, 40 minutes without credits. It's super easy. It's hopeful. It's energetic. It's romantic. It's melodramatic. Come on. Like, yeah, it's a little hokey, but it's it's fine. You know, it's, it's corny, but yeah. it, it's decent corny. <laughs> it's not bad corny. Yeah. And it, I don't know. Something about the the whole nazi subplot feels especially relevant today ironically isn't isn't it is that ironic or is it just really sad that it's still relevant today uh i mean we'll we'll get to it because we'll get to it yeah okay so uh you can watch casablanca on hbo max but if you're driving if you're doing some chores uh we can we this is the part of the episode where we summarize the movie uh, so you have context for the conversation that we're about to have. All right. So the film takes place in Casablanca, Morocco in 1941. So this is before Pearl Harbor and everything, which is kind of important to the movie. Uh, we get like this, this uh, kind of prologue about the importance of Casablanca as a kind of hub for refugees because there's a lot of people who are trying to leave Europe um, because of the Nazis. You know, this is 1941. The Third Reich is trying to take over all Europe and eventually the world. Uh, so there's a lot of people who are trying to leave. And they all have to go through Casablanca to get to Lisbon. And then, then they can go to the States. Uh, to the United States. Uh, so that's kind of like the setting. And in in Casablanca, it's kind of like a shady place. It's like kind of a a melting pot of all these different nationalities. Like you'll have people from China, you'll have people from Russia, people from France, a lot of people from France. And then you have an American expatriate, Rick, who's played by Humphrey Bogart. And Rick is kind of like this jaded like businessman. I stick my neck out for nobody. Uh, he runs a nightclub which is also kind of an underground gambling den. It's just Rick's Rick's Cafe. 
um, everybody comes to Rick's. It's where everybody goes and they do their like little shady business deals. They try to like sell tickets to refugees trying to leave. Before the events of the film, there were these German couriers who were killed and on them they had these like two tickets to like leave the country and go to America, which is something that everybody kind of wants in Casablanca. It's very valuable. It's kind of like a get out of jail free card. So he's running his club and then this shady guy uh, who, who's played by... Peter Lohr? Peter Lohr, Ugarte. Who's... Oh man, he, I've seen him in other like movies of this era. He always plays like this kind of shady guy who's But he's, he's an incredible and, actor. He's a great, great actor. Anyway, he, he comes into Rick's bar and he's like, Hey Rick, guess what I got? I got these tickets. You know, the, those uh, German couriers that were murdered? Well, somehow I have their tickets. And Rick is like, oh, I underestimated you. You're, you're pretty clever, aren't you? And then Ugarte is like, here, hang on to these tickets because uh, things might get a little dicey tonight. <laughs> and Rick is like, okay, I'll hang on to them. Um, and also coming to, this, to the uh, bar is uh, Captain Renault who's played by Claude Rains, another huge actor of this period. He's the the French, like, I don't know what he is, like the, he's the guy in charge of Morocco, which I guess is occupied by France, who is currently occupied by Nazi Germany. So the Nazis kind of control Morocco with like a kind of puppet government with, with France. So like, Renault gets to be in charge but who's really in charge is the Nazis. And one of them is coming to town. So Renault's trying to like impress this Nazi. So he has a kind of like adversarial relationship with Rick. They're kind of buddy, buddy. He lets him win at the, the, the gambling casino and everything. But he's they're They're always like taking like little shots at each other. You know, it's a, it's a weird relationship where they they're friendly, but they're kind of dicks to each other. Um, <laughs> He, he comes in and he's like, hey, uh, you hear about those German couriers that were murdered? Well, we're going to arrest the guy who killed them tonight and don't try to warn him. And he's like, all right, I stick my neck out for nobody. You don't got nothing to worry about me. He says this like four times in the movie. <laughs> Renault tells him that there's an important refugee coming by. His name is uh, Victor Laszlo and he has a beautiful wife. And Victor Laszlo is kind of famous because he's fighting the Nazis somehow. We don't really explain, but he has contact with all the resistance members. Uh, he's been fighting the Nazis for a while. They tried to capture him three times, but he escaped a concentration camp after a year. And he just, he just keeps on evading them. It's like a, a fox and hound type deal where he's just out maneuvering them. And he hasn't given up the fight. He's like the hero of, of this movie. You know, he's like the good guy. Renault tells him that Victor Laszlo is coming and the Third Reich does not want him to leave. He used to be kind of stuck in Morocco until he dies. And Rick says, oh, I know, I know about Victor Laszlo. I bet you 10,000 francs he's going to get out of here. And Renault's like, well, I bet you 10,000 he's not going to leave here. Um, so then the Nazi guy, the, the Major Strausser, he comes in and he, immediately Renault's kind of kissing ass to the Nazi, uh, even though he's French and 
the Nazis have invaded France. He's kissing ass to the Nazi, making sure that his table is close to the pretty ladies, making sure that there's double guard duty and everything. And they start to arrest Ugarte. And Ugarte pulls a gun. He starts. To, he tries to shoot back, but they arrest him. And they take him away. And he's like, "Rick, help me!" And Rick's like, "I stick my neck out for nobody." <laughs> they let him get dragged away, and we never see him again because he gets killed. But the night's not over because now in comes like the good guy, Victor Laszlo, and he has his wife Ilsa Lund, who's played by Ingrid Bergman. And they they come around and Ilsa's kind of like asking about Rick. They've kind of heard about Rick because he used to be a soldier. He used to fight against fascism. Now he kind of just has a bar and doesn't care about anybody or politics or anything. Ilsa talks to the piano player, Sam, and it's implied that they know each other. And Sam kind of, he wants Ilsa to leave without Rick seeing her. Because there's a lot of history between them. He makes lies like, oh, Rick isn't isn't here. He actually has a girlfriend. Uh, he, he's not available right now. And she's like, play it, play it, Sam. Play the song. Play as time goes by. And he's like, no, I can't do it. And she's like, oh, I'll hum it for you. And he's like, all right, I'll play the song. And as he's playing the song, she's kind of like taken aback in a memory. And then Rick comes over angry. And he's like, Sam, I told you never play that song again. But then he sees Ilsa there. And then they have like a moment where they look at each other. And then Ilsa's husband, Laszlo, he's like looking at them, look at each other. And he's like, what's going on here? And then uh, Bernal, he comes by and they all have a drink together and they all kind of talk. And then Vic, uh, Rick pays for their bills. And Renault's like, oh, that's, that's weird. That's a very uncommon thing to happen. The Nazi comes by and he tells... Laszlo, hey, meet me in my office at 10 o'clock in the morning tomorrow. And then they leave. And then Rick is like really in his feels and he's sad and he's drinking with, with Sam. And Sam's telling him, you got you to gotta go home. But Rick's like, no, play, play as time goes by. If she can bear it, I can bear it. So he starts playing the song. And he's, he looks like he's about to cry. Like Humphrey Bogart usually plays like a really tough guy. I've never seen him look as depressed as he does in this, <laughs> in this movie, in this scene. It's like Bruce Willis. Like imagine Bruce Willis about to cry because he's hearing a song. <laughs> um, and he's, he's playing the song. And then Ingrid Bergman, uh, Ilsa, she opens the door. And he's like, oh, she's here. Why did you leave me in Paris? And she's like, well, I came here to tell you why I left you. And then he's like, yeah, well, don't bother. I hate you. It's basically the conversation. It's not what, what's said, but that's what happens. And then we get a flashback of their time in Paris. And, you know, uh, Rick is a happy dude. Ilsa's a happy lady. They're driving around. They're, they're going through Paris. It, it's, it's great. Uh, Sam is there for some reason. He's playing piano. I'm not really sure what their jobs are at, at the point, but it's they're in Paris before the Nazis invaded. And it's a great time. They, they're not talking about their past because, of, you know, they're just talking about the now. And uh, when the Nazis come, the Nazi invasion is inevitable. 
Rick wants Ilsa to come with him and then they move to America or something. They move away. They escape the Nazis. And she's like, I'll meet you at the, at the train station. But then at the train station, he just gets a note that says, I can't be with you. I, I love you, but I don't think I can ever see you again. And he's like, God damn, what the hell? And Sam is like, hey, Rick, let's get out of here. You know, the Nazis don't like you because you used to fight against fascism in the Spain and whatever. So they, they leave together and then flash forward to the present and they're at the bar being sad. Uh, the next day, we find out that the Strasser is like kind of threatening Laszlo. If you, uh, you can't leave here, you're a subject of the Third Reich. Oh, by the way, that guy you were looking for, we found him dead. And we couldn't figure out if he committed suicide or if he died trying to escape. <laughs> so they're like, oh, fuck. Uh, but the letters of transit, they're missing. Uh, but they, they all kind of, all the bad guys kind of suspect Rick has them because he's a businessman. He has a rival businessman who owns another bar, Ferrari. His name is Ferrari. And like, I guess the joke is that he's kind of, large and rick kind of makes fun of him being fat <laughs> he's kind of third rick is like not a good person he's kind of an asshole um but he meets up with ferrari and ferrari's like hey i know you have those letters of transit let me buy them off of you and then the laszlo and ilsa try to meet with with ferrari and laszlo tries to buy the tickets off of off of ferrari but ferrari's like i don't have them but in the meantime, Ilsa and Rick kind of meet up and he's trying to apologize, but he does it in that like, a, I'm not going to say I'm sorry, but I'm letting you know I'm in a better mood now. So you can tell me what you're going to tell me yesterday. <laughs> and she's like, no, you're an asshole. And they, they get separated again. Uh, Laszlo finds out from Ferrari that Rick probably has those papers and, you know, he's a businessman, so you could probably buy them off of him. So he tries to buy the papers off of Rick later that night. But Rick is like, you know what? I can't sell you these papers. Even if you offered me 3 million francs. You want to know why? Ask your wife. <laughs> so is so like, what the hell? Ask my wife? Meanwhile, the Nazis have kind of taken over Rick's. And they're singing their like patriotic third reich anthem i don't know what it is but it's they're all singing it and the people look very unhappy that the germans are singing in morocco lasso sees this and he gets the band and they play like the french national anthem i'm assuming yeah i don't know what it it's a national anthem mm -hmm. uh, so he gets them to play the french national anthem and all the people in the bar are singing along with it and the nazis kind of like oh they're singing louder than us but i guess we'll stop but Strausser, he's very upset about this. So he goes directly to Renault and tells him, hey, look at, look at Laszlo. Look at what he's doing. He's inspiring the people. You need to shut this place down. And Renault is like, well, I have no grounds to, to shut this place down. And he's like, find them. So Renault calls, blows his whistle and tells everybody, hey, Rick's is closing down. Why? Uh, because you're gambling. You're gambling back there. I'm shocked that you're gambling back there. <laughs> and as he's saying this, like a, a, the guy who runs the, the roulette table gives him his winnings. So, you know, Rick, uh, Renault's a corrupt. He's very corrupt. Uh, so Rick's closes 
and he's doing the math with his with his uh I think he's German, a German banker. No, he's not a banker. He's doing some math with one of his his employees and they're like, "Okay, well we can keep everybody employed for 2 weeks. We can't afford to be closed down for too long." So Rick says, "Okay, that's fine. Keep everybody on the payroll." And then the guy his employee tells him, "I'm going to go to the meeting," implying that he's a part of like the resistance meeting that Laszlo is going to attend. Uh, and he's like, I don't want to know where you're going. I don't need to know that you're a part of the resistance. There's a curfew. There's the Nazis are here. Don't tell me anything. So that night Laszlo goes to the meeting because, you know, he's a freedom fighter and Ilsa goes to Rick that night and tells him, asks him to give them the ticket so that they can leave or at least give Lazlo the ticket so he can leave and continue his work. And he's like, no, I won't do it. So she pulls a gun on him and tells him, please do it or I'll kill you. And he's like, you're not going to kill me. And then they kind of like, they I don't think they kiss, but they almost kiss or something. And she's like, I'm sorry about everything. And they kind of talk finally. And he finds out that Ilsa thought Laszlo was dead, but he was actually in the concentration camp. And then she found out that he was alive and had escaped. So on the day that they were going to leave. So she had to leave Rick to save her husband or to be with her husband because she just found out that he was still alive. So he kind of understands what's happening. And she's, she's like, well, I can't leave you again. This is too hard. You think for us. Think for the both of us. And he's like, all right, I've got a plan. I'll just trust me. And then uh, Laszlo comes into the the restaurant because the meeting had been busted up. Rick has Elsa taken home in secret from one of his employees. And he talks to Laszlo in private. Laszlo had no idea Elsa was there. But Laszlo, he kind of, like you think that he's just like the dumb husband who just doesn't know anything. But he knows that Ilsa and Rick had a romantic history. So he tells her, so he tells Rick, I know about you two. I understand. But you need to, to put aside your, your differences with my wife and give her the paper so she can leave. I'll stay here. I'll find some other way. And he's like, uh, I don't forget what he says, but it doesn't matter because the police come in and arrest Laszlo. Rick is kind of thinking about what he's going to do. Like Ilsa's still free. He could leave with her. She gave kind of basically gave him the okay to like take her away from her husband. <laughs> so he devises a plan to put his name on the paper with Ilsa and they go to America. So he makes all of his arrangements, tells his rival businessman, Hey, you can have Sam give him 25%. Uh, and then he goes to Renault and he's like, all right, you have Laszlo for some stupid crime. How about you arrest him for the big one and you look real good in front of the Nazis? And Renault's like, hmm, I don't know about this, but I'll take your deal. So he tells Laszlo, hey, I'm going to give you the papers and you're going to leave with your wife to America. And Laszlo's like, great. So that night he comes over to the bar, but Renault's waiting and then he's like, ha, I gotcha. You have those papers that incriminates you with the murder of the couriers. You're going to jail. But Rick is like, not so fast. He pulls a gun on Renault and he tells him, you call the airport and tell them that you have two passengers coming, Ilsa and Laszlo. 
And he's like, hmm, I can't believe I was fooled by you, Rick. You're not going to get away with this, but I'll make the phone call. But the bastard calls the Nazis. He calls Strausser and tells him two passengers are coming to the airport. And the Nazi's like, wait, what is the meaning of this phone call? What? Let's go to the airport. Everybody gets to the airport. They're about to put Laszlo and Ilsa on the plane. Uh, Laszlo, he like walks away for a second <laughs> so that Ilsa and Rick can have this like romantic conversation that's like been spoofed a hundred times. It's, it's a great scene where he tells her, I know that you love him and the work that he does is important. And if you stay with me, you're going to regret it. And something about the hill of beans and three people's problems don't matter <laughs> to the world. I'm butchering the monologue. But he tells her you, you belong with him. So he comes back. Laszlo comes back. And he kind of sends Ilsa away with, with uh, Laszlo. And they're getting on the plane. But then the Nazi arrives. And he's like, why is Laszlo getting on the plane? What's happening, Renault? And Renault's like, he pulled a gun on me. So he gets on the phone. Rick pulls the gun on the Nazi. And he's like, hey, you let them leave or I'll shoot you. And the Nazi is like, no. And so he, the Nazi pulls out his gun. Rick shoots him dead. And Renault's just like watching all this happen. The cops show up. They see the dead Nazi and they're like, what the hell happened? And Renault says, Strausser has been murdered. Round up the usual suspects. So at the very last second, Renault turns into a, a good guy, I guess. And covers the murder for Rick. And they walk off into the fog and they kind of plan their escape together. It's it kind of implied that they're both going to leave uh, Casablanca. And uh, Rick says the famous line, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That's the end of the movie. There's a lot to talk about with this movie. Um, as we usually do, we're going to talk about the story first. And I wanted to break down just some of the general components we mm -hmm. don't typically do this, but I feel like it'd be e the easiest way to like break down this film. There's a lot of great stuff in this movie. Things that are really enjoyable that kind of make it what it is. And I think first off, the, the, I think the point that we need to start off with is the writing. The writing's great. And what yes. makes it great is this is classic Hollywood storytelling. And by that, it combines a lot of different genres together, genre elements together together um that makes it feel like there's always something happening there's a shifting in tones and we mentioned that in scream and this movie's another example of that except it doesn't have horror but it has a lot of comedy plenty of comedy romance between humphrey bogart ingrid uh, bergman and uh paul Hen henry which is victor laszlo you've got that love triangle kind of thing you've also got the nazi occupation like the World War II elements, which there aren't any mm -hmm. real wars, but there's tension. There's kind of uh, like it's tension. not a war movie, but it's in war times. And they, yes. they really remind you that the Nazis are there and people don't like them. Yeah. And it kind of gives you this foreboding uh, sense of just like these Nazis being here and just kind of oppressing everyone. And yeah. you also have a lot of political statements in there because this movie is really about refugees right most of the characters in the movie are refugees in casablanca yeah They're, everyone's trying to get to lisbon because from lisbon they could get away 
to wherever they want, primarily the U.S. But Casablanca is kind of like this is your final stop. You have to get permission or you have to buy your way out of it, which is obviously really expensive and really difficult to get papers. Right. That's why Ugarte had to kill the German couriers. Mm -hmm. So you have the movie kind of dealing with all these different genres and moving in between all of them. It just makes it feel like, oh, this is you're never bored or you're never like staying with one tone for too long. Right. Mm -hmm. And you'll have these musical numbers in there, followed by a romantic scene or a scene of melancholy. Like with you were saying, Humphrey Bogart kind of being depressed. Yeah. which yeah he's like depressed and he's sad like he looks like he's about to cry you know and he even yeah. has that line and all the chain joints and all the towns and all the world <laughs> she walks in on mine <laughs> but but it's, you get where he's coming from it's it's melodramatic but you get what he's communicating which is like fuck yeah it's a great like the way he says it like the rhythm the cadence it's like a movie line you know people don't talk like that but we don't watch movies to to see how people talk normally because people aren't that eloquent you know it's like a, a a great movie line it's overwritten but that's that's why it's so good i think that, no no i 100 percent agree. In particular we, we talked about this in titanic well i'll be goddamned <laughs> but that that was what they actually said you well, know well that's what the person who discovered the ship said but yeah yeah, the way they film it and everything, the zoom in, well, I'll be goddamn. <laughs> but that's what we watch movies for, especially yeah. Hollywood films. Because, okay, mm -hmm. you could argue certain films don't need to be that melodramatic or that, like, theatrical. But it works when you're watching, when you're making a 1940s Hollywood picture, right? Mm -hmm. Like a giant romantic kind of wartime romance film you know like noir yeah. with noir elements like you need to you need to have those kind of those kind of lines in delivery and it yeah. works really well and i think it was funny one of the writers i think one of the writers was like um is it the corn one yeah yeah it's the corn <laughs> line do you have the line in front of you uh i i think i do i remember seeing it and i was like god damn what a what a burn <laughs> No, but it but it makes sense though. Like you 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 hear it, it's like yeah, man. Julius Epstein, um, who one of the writers. Julius Epstein was he one of the writers? Yes, Julius Epstein is one of the writers. He he has a twin brother, and they wrote the script. Julius and Philip uh, Epstein. Oh, okay. So one of the writers said the screenplay contained more corn than in the states of Kansas and Iowa combined. But when corn works, there's nothing better. <laughs> Well, but he's right, though. Like, he's it, right. He's totally right. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to hold it against that. And and the movie has a lot of those elements. And that's coming from the writer himself. Like, there were a lot of writers. There was uh, yeah. someone who, there were the, the Epsteins. There was this, uh, the Coke guy. Um, Howard Coke. And there was also the, the play it was based on called yeah. Everybody Comes to Rick's, which I guess was never produced, but they bought the rights to it because they were like, this is a banger. <laughs> yeah. And Let's there was also an uncredited fourth writer. Um, there was an uncredited fourth writer. I think Casey Robinson, I believe, was his name. Basically, it took four people to write the screenplay. Also, I, I believe the director um, also had some contributions to the script. Uh, Michael Curtis. Yeah, and the and the producer Halby Wallace also had some contributions to the script, but there's only three writers that were, were credited. 
I, yeah. I think um, Casey Robinson was responsible for changing uh, Ilsa's role from an American divorcee to a European refugee, mm-hmm. which is what this article says from Slash Film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you so you had these writers, they kind of came in, and they found a way to kind of blend all these different genres, all these different tones, and they gave a lot of these characters, like, uh, like interesting quirks, interesting, like, personalities that are very much archetypes, but, like, it works, you know? Like, Humphrey yeah. Bogart is, like, Rick is, is the, uh, I don't do nothing for nobody. But he's saying yeah. that not because he's a bad guy, but because his heart was broken and he, it's shattered in a million pieces and he doesn't care about putting them back together. And he's become very nihilistic, very just like lone wolf style, right? You've got, um, yeah. you've got, uh, what's his name? Um, the, the Captain Renault? Captain Renault, which is like the police commissioner, right? He's kind of an asshole, but. He, ultimately, he's a good guy. You've got at Victor the very Laz- end, though. At the, at the very vi- end, he he turns because, like, throughout the movie, he's like, he's funny, but like, dude, some of the things he's doing are really terrible. They're not. They're not good. Some of the things that he does, they make it a point to say that, look, man, I'm wherever I'm headed, wherever the wind goes, and if the Nazis are here and you're telling me to do this, like, okay, like I'm not going to stand in your way, but that's just because of these legal rules and policies that are in place and at the very end he does decide to do the right thing um but renault isn't like a terrible guy like you're not looking at him and rick walking away and being like fuck renault you know i don't, um, I don't know he's it, i think he the way claude reigns plays him is just so charming yes that it's like oh but like uh, one of the plot points that i went over was that there's this couple from the very beginning of the movie that they're like, Oh, maybe we'll be on the plane to Lisbon next week or something. And they, they come back throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. They, they go to Rick's. They're looking for a guy that will sell them a passage. They visit captain Renault and, uh, the, the officer tells Renault, Oh, we another visa problem. And then you see Renault had this like shit eating grin and he like straightens up his tie and he says, send her in. <laughs> so you know what kind of dude well, this, this guy is it's later yeah. implied when the woman i think anina kind of mm. talks to rick and she's like if i did something to kind of help my husband because he's trying to get us passage out of casablanca if i did something that could get us money but it was a bad thing should i tell him yes or no which is it very much implying that renault yes. is using his position to get to exchange papers for sex like that's yes. it's very much implied. She like it's very implied because she asks that, but only after asking, what kind of a man is Captain Renault? Is he a man of his word? So like they're they seem like two independent questions, but when you when you combine all the context, you're like, oh, what the hell? Yeah. That dude's a piece of shit. Rewatching this, I'd never noticed that the first time I watched it in high school. I didn't really notice it either. I didn't I didn't I didn't I forgot about that couple completely. But it's such a great part of the script because it kind of foreshadows Rick's decision at the end. Because what does he do? He helps the husband win at roulette, puts himself out 20,000 francs, however much money that is in those times, uh, enough for him to afford to buy the papers. There are multiple moments where people say to Rick, like, you're a sentimentalist, like, you're not actually Mm -hmm. as bad as you say you are. 
And Rick's like, no, I don't stick my neck out for no one. And yet through his action, his actions say otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, he helps like he keeps everyone's salaries going when the Nazis shut down the bar. He like gives the guy the secret. He helps the guy rig the system so he could win, you know, the money to win passage out of Casablanca. So Rick is a good guy. And I think some of that kind of wears on Renault, like it kind of changes Renault a bit. Renault's not a. I mean, it's Renault's complicated. He's probably the most complicated character because you don't hate him, but then there are moments like that that will come up where you find out he's exchanging papers for sex. It's like, ooh, that's not a good thing. And then and he it, does it's something cult- that is is kind of like implied that he does normally because he yes. says he he tells Rick to stop interfering with his romances. <laughs> so yeah. like. and that's kind of one of the interesting things about this movie it's very like it where like it's a basic movie like it doesn't really try to do any plot twists turns or anything like it's it's not i wouldn't say it's predictable but it's very upfront about what it is right a melodramatic romantic story from classic hollywood right Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of ambiguity in the film if that makes sense Ambiguity in the characters, kind of the things that they say and they don't, the, the way they behave, the way they behave, certain characters' backgrounds and backstories. Like, we don't know why Rick can't go to America. We don't. It's never explained. Right. And the writers go on to say that, well, we never, we couldn't find a good enough reason, so we just kind of kept it out. <laughs> but, I mean, while you're watching the film, like, you're kind of looking for it, but you could come up with whatever reason you want. There's a level of ambiguity in the film. And they're just like, just go with it. And you could kind of fill in the blanks yeah. for yourself. There's also like these little these side characters that will appear, have a few lines and then kind of be in the background of the film. But even those characters, they're they're still kind of telling a story with them. Like the one yes. that I'm thinking of is the character that's like, Rick, why didn't you call me last night? You know? And he's like, You had too much to drink. I'm gonna send you home. Right? Oh, Yvonne? And, yeah, Yvonne. And she comes back later in the arms of a Nazi. Yeah. Right. And then some guy, some French uh, police officer or something, he says something to her in French that's never translated. And she says something back to him. And you can tell that he's probably calling her like a traitor or something. Yeah. Because the Nazi, he gets all offended. He's like, wait, what'd you say? What'd you say? Translate it. And they they come to blows and everything. And then when... And towards the the part where they, they they play all the music, like there's a battle of the bands, I guess. <laughs> you you see her like in tears singing the the French song, so you you can tell there's some kind of conflict going on with her. I don't know if that's the writing or if it's the directing or maybe all of the above with the performance and everything. But even like those little characters that are like don't matter, they kind of do absolutely yeah absolutely 100 percent. and i think part of it's the writing and the creation of these supporting characters because yvonne i mean why is she hanging out with a a german soldier you could come up with your own reason and i love that level of ambiguity it's just enough to get you curious about each character but it's not enough where it over explains everything because this isn't yvonne's movie right this Mm -hmm. is rick ilsa's and victor's story um and, it, and it, it's there's a lot of interesting backstories like like Sam's involvement with Rick. We're not really sure their relationship. We knew that they knew we know that they knew each other in Paris, but 
outside of that, we don't know too much. You have Carl who uh, works at the bar and he's kind of like one of Rick, Ma- like Rick's right hand men who kind of manages. And he has like his own German accent, I believe. He must, I think he's German because he's talking to the German uh, refugees, right? That's what I'm thinking he is. Yeah. He's Hungarian in real life. Mm. I don't know. You've got Ferrari who kind of runs his own side hustle. Uh, and you've also got the Russian bartender. So you've got all these different characters that clearly they're all ethnically different. And they're somehow all in Casablanca. Like nationally different, at least. Nationally, sorry. And it's just really interesting to kind of... You don't really get an emphasis. You don't really get an explanation for any one of them. They're just like... These are the characters that inhabit Casablanca because of the circumstances of the war. You know, they're all rich. They're all really interesting. And you can the kind rich of... riches in, like, they, they have a lot of depth to them. Rich in terms of, like, the, the presence and charisma that they have on screen. Right? Yeah. I think... I, I think I think by that kind of measure, because um, they're not really deep. None of these characters, like Ferrari isn't really deep or Carl, but whenever they're on screen, I like seeing them. I think they're cool. Yeah. And I, I think another to that, another thing to that is that the dialogue's really witty. Yeah, like, it's really it's, snappy. It's snappy. It's quick. It, <laughs> I hate doing this. I feel like we talk about them every time, but it kind of reminds me of like Marvel pre-Marvel in the sense of just like the pace that the characters talk to, and that could also be due to the editing. But like they got that like pan 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 Pacific pan American accent. Transatlantic. Transatlantic. That transatlantic a- accent where it's like, hey, listen here, baby girl. Uh <laughs> three people's desires aren't about to hill of beans, yeah. <laughs> but like it's really quick too and it is witty. And it's funny. Rick, there's going to be some excitement here tonight. We're going to make an arrest in your cafe. Not again. Oh, this is no ordinary arrest. A murderer, no less. If you're thinking of warning him, don't put yourself out. He cannot possibly escape. I'd stick my neck out for nobody. A wise foreign policy. <laughs> you know, like him saying, I don't stick my neck out for anybody. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I I was laughing when, every time he said it. Yeah, I, I really like Claude Rains's lines, I think. Like there's there's the part where he has the gun pulled on him and he's like, you're not going to shoot me. And he's and then uh, Rick says, like, oh, you're surprised about my friend, Ricky. The explanation is quite simple. Love, it seems, has triumphed over virtue. Thank you. Not so fast, Louis. Nobody's going to be arrested. Not for a while yet. You've taken leave of your senses. I have. Sit down over there. Put that gun down. Louis, I wouldn't like to shoot you, but I will if you take one more step. Under the circumstances, I will sit down. your hands on the table. I suppose you know what you're doing, but I wonder if you realize what this means. I do. We've got plenty of time to discuss that later. Call off your watchdogs, you said. Just the same. You call the airport and let me hear you tell them. And remember, this gun is pointed right at your heart. That is my least vulnerable spot. But the, the funny part is what Renault says. And he says, under the circumstances, I'll sit down. <laughs> <laughs> After, like, trying to call his bluff and then immediately, like, recanting it. But, like, in a way that he doesn't lose dignity exactly yes yes that's a good way of putting it and all the characters kind of had that pace and that kind of whimsical writing even like the supporting characters like remember when ilsa's like in the market and she's like looking at like things to buy in the market and the guy's like oh you're a friend of rick you'll you get it for a hundred dollars and yeah he's just constantly lowering the price yeah that that sort of that sort of writing is really cool it's very classic hollywood you know like we just we get to the point that's it like 
And you have these really iconic lines, you know, that I don't know how they've become iconic, but they have, you know, like in all the gin joints and all the towns and all the worlds, you know, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a friendship, of a beautiful friendship. It's like, here's looking at you, kid. Like Mm -hmm. all these lines, these are just so beautiful, you know, they're so fun to say. The writing holds up. The writing is great. Round up the usual suspects. The Brian Singer movie. The Usual Suspects, that that bit was taken from Casablanca. When you named your movie The Usual Suspects, I feel like movie people will be like, oh, like Casablanca. It's a reference to Casablanca. Mm-hmm. That's how memorable and iconic this movie is. Yeah, the blending all the tones and genres together, having the witty writing, having super interesting, rich, fun, supporting characters, right? And ha- infusing mm-hmm. your main characters with like a strong, like like belief system is 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 really what I think makes this movie age so well, right? And Rick's kind of arc at the end and kind of the themes of like, you know, standing up for things that are bigger than you, you know, sacrificing. Because yeah. at the end of the day, kind of most people's kind of in most characters kind of sacrifice something at the end of this movie. And yeah. having that whole speech at the end of like, look, Ilsa, I want you, but I, we can't be together. And really our union isn't going it, to, it could potentially cause you to have regrets in the future. And it, this doesn't amount to much in the grand scheme of things. And I think that's great. I think that's awesome. I think we need more of that, especially today. <laughs> yeah, just like a clarity of, <laughs> of people who can't get over an old relationship. Just have that clarity, like uh, eloquently put, and then just, all right, see you later. You know. <laughs> well, and it's also just being selfless. Right. Mm-hmm. Being selfless and putting putting other people ahead of you. And Rick constantly does that. Right. You can tell that he kind of wants to be that person. But like you said, he he's been hurt. So now he like pretends that he's this only out for myself guy. Yeah. But even then, like there's still a lot of intrigue with the film because y- you you can tell that he is a good person, that he's not a bad person. But you don't know how far it's going to go until the very last scene of the film where he puts his chips on the table and he's like, I'm willing to shoot you, Renault, and I'm going to kill this guy and I'm going to get Ilsa go. Like, I'm going to let Ilsa go. Like, it's just one after the other with the other. It's like a confirmation of like what we felt all along and we're relieved that mm-hmm. Rick got to this point where now he's sacrificing his opportunity to be, be with Ilsa in order to, you know, get back into the fight. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. I just think it's awesome. Like, I think it's... I love it's a really it. like satisfying, bitter, sweet ending. Yes, but I love those, and I think those for me personally have a big place in my heart. I kind of compare it to like La La Land in a way, which is mm-hmm. like, yeah, 
I wanted Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone to kind of be together the, at the very end, mm-hmm. but they aren't. But both of their dreams were, they they were able to obtain their dreams. So it is yeah. like the satisfying bittersweet where it's like, ah, oh well, like it just makes it makes me feel full. It makes me feel yeah. good. It feels appropriate because when I looked and and saw like how they were writing this movie, which is very interesting. Yeah, they didn't know how they were going to end the movie. And I'm like, what? How could you not? It's so obvious to me. But I guess it's hindsight 2020. Absolutely. But like, they they were thinking about having Rick and Ilsa be together. But like, they just have Laszlo die so that it kind of lets them off the hook to to rekindle their relationship. That sounds lame as fuck. (laughs) It definitely takes the story in a very different direction. And I mean, would people have been happy about Rick and Elsa? Sure. But the underlining, like, morality of the film would have been betrayed. But by having Victor and Elsa be together, Rick sacrificing it, he's getting over his breakup or this pseudo breakup. But he's also making peace with Elsa while acknowledging Victor's uh, efforts, war efforts. It's like... It's beautiful. Like, yeah, that's great. How can you not be satisfied by all that? You know? Yeah. I, so I think I, I think maybe sometimes we get like too involved in like the personal stuff. We don't see like the the larger picture because it is not only him getting over their relationship and making peace with somebody. There's also who Rick is at his core is is finally coming back. You know, he's been holding his sentimentality in he's, you know, he, he wants, he clearly was someone who fought for what was right. You could say, but Mm -hmm. he is no longer that person. And, but that person inside still wants to come out. Like when they do that whole, like battle of the bands thing, um, the, the musicians aren't going to play because Laszlo says, play the song. They look to Rick before they start doing anything. And Rick does the nod and like, yeah, he's he's deep down. He is that guy. He doesn't hate Laszlo because I feel like maybe some part of him wishes he could be Laszlo. Maybe I don't know if I'm projecting or what, but I think he he has a great deal of respect for Laszlo. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the fact that you're able to convey all of these different things and themes and character in like an hour and 40 minutes. Kudos to you, man. It's really good. Yeah, I think the the thing that kind of stands out, there are two things that I wanted to talk about with with the how the movie works and everything was the the performances. And I've been I kind of talked about it a little bit before, but uh I I think the performances are really really fun. Mm-hmm. You can have a character like Renault who his lines and his actions are despicable, but the way Claude Rains plays them, he's really funny. I like exactly. when yeah. When he has lines and when he says them and how he says them. The guy that, uh, Ugarte, when he shows up, ah, man, I, I kind of wish he was in the movie more, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's not a gripe I have against the movie. I just like seeing that actor. He always plays that, like, that, like, I feel like he plays the, the, the Gollum like character, uh, the, mm-hmm. The sneaky guy that's up to something, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Humphrey Bogart, like he's great, great actor. He plays the 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 tough guy, but he 
in this movie in particular, he also has like a very sensitive side that doesn't, I feel like he doesn't come out in other movies. Granted, I haven't seen a ton of Humphrey Bogart movies, but I was surprised by him in, in this movie. Um, and then you have like Ingrid Bergman, who who plays Ilsa, who like on paper, Ilsa kind of a boring character, right? Like she at the end, she can't choose between these two guys. You you make the decision for me. I'm too tired to think. Like what the hell, dude? Just, <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 so silly. Uh, but the way she plays it is like, aw, Ilsa. Poor Ilsa. You know, the way that she's lit too, which is more to do with like how films portrayed women back then. Mm-hmm. But the way that she she uh, reacts to, to Sam when she's getting him to play that song and how she acts when she's hearing the song and how she looks at Laszlo and looks at Rick. Like there's there's so much being done. So much of that character is carried by her performance that, you know, I kind of overlook the kind of um, boring character that exists on the paper, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's some interesting things that they do with Ilsa, but I think her performance elevates that role a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. scene when she's about to, like, when she's threatening to shoot Rick, I was like, oh, damn. I don't know if you're really, really, really ready to do this, but the fact that you're even thinking about it is pretty ballsy. It comes from a, like a place of pain and I can sympathize with her. It's not like yes. oh, this, this silly girl. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I think what really for me works with Rick and Ilsa is that they're both able to communicate the vast majority of like, they're able to communicate a lot of emotions by obviously the way they say certain lines, but really by them not even saying things. And it's like a whole host of emotions, right? Like, Mm-hmm. kind of melancholy um nostalgia for the past worry fear desperation sadness anger <laughs> on rick's part like they're able to communicate they're able to communicate all of these different feelings and it oh, makes yeah. they're, they all come very smoothly like they're not mm-hmm. forcing it you know like it's not like rick's eyebrows at one moment are like pointed up and then they shift down. He's like, oh, he's angry now. No, like they <laughs> blend into each other very, very easily. Oh, that's yeah. why these close-ups of each of the actors like hit really hard because you know exactly mm-hmm. what they're thinking and what they're feeling, and that makes you sympathize with them so much more. Because you're right, like Ilsa is stuck in between a rock and a hard place. She loves both men, but she doesn't know what to do. And and you're like, look, is that lazy? Potentially. But with that indecision and the way that Ilsa performs it, I'm like, damn, girl, I don't know what you should do. I don't know either. I'm going to watch you make the decision. <laughs> yeah, she's... Man, like, because I, I watched the film, right? And I was like, oh, that's actually a pretty good movie. There's so much stuff that I forgot about it that kind of, like, makes it better. And then I was reading some of the reviews that came out during the time and they were like Ilsa's role is really boring but she plays it very well and I'm like oh actually you're you're right yeah I think it was a times article something from 19 1942 that was like her role is boring but she plays it really good and I was like yes absolutely and I went back over 
like the the story and everything i'm like oh my god she really doesn't do anything <laughs> she doesn't make too many big decisions and she's very much there to be the support system of victor laszlo right mm-hmm. like that's that's very much she's rick's romantic interest but she's also victor's support system which is very classic hollywood like women are either the support system or the femme fatales or they're like evil temptresses and yeah yeah or or the maids and servants right yes yes um those are really the four roles that you have if you were a woman back in the day so obviously with a few exceptions but but ingrid right kind of falls into one of those categories but her acting elevates it to the point where you're like damn girl i don't know what the fuck you're gonna do good luck yeah, I, I think that normally in a, in a film of this period, it's easy to like a, a trap that a lot, I don't know if it's a trap, but a, it's something that a lot of movies do that's kind of annoying where it just like makes the woman look bad because she broke the heart of our hero. You know, and I feel like that's a lot of ways that people who are younger, when they get into relationships and they break up, how they they cope is like they start hating the person and maybe even the entire gender that broke their heart. It's a really immature thing to do, but a lot of people do it. And I think that's why a lot of those like alpha male, sigma male content creators are so popular. It's it's just like feeding the misogyny from a guy who had his heart broken. Like, (laughs) get over it, but... (laughs) Well... well, that's the thing. It's, it's hard. It's, it's easier said than done. Right. Because we've mm-hmm. all had our hearts broken and, and you can't change how you feel. Like if you're angry, it's okay. Like it's okay to feel angry. The problem is when you start targeting, like, you, you know what I mean? That's when you start, that's when you start getting into dangerous territory. Rick yeah. being upset though, I get where he's coming from. Right. Like, yeah. Like it, and that's that's what makes this movie so interesting. It has like mm-hmm. a pretty I mean, don't get me wrong. When he's shit talking Ilsa, it's kind of bad. I'm like, yeah, he definitely crosses some lines. Yes. Like, yes. He very much. It, I can tell it's coming from a place of hurt, but it also yes. shows her just maybe not as much is written, but the way she's allowed to perform it, it makes her just as complex. We're, we're not ever like, oh, how could you, Ilsa? You know? Yeah. It it doesn't like reprimand her for her actions. No, 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 no. And if anything, it gives you the sense that like she wants to reach out and she wants to explain. But Rick's being very um, a bit of a dick. <laughs> he's being a douchebag. Yeah, he's being a he's being a douchebag. And, and that's what I like. That you know, like I get where each of them are coming from. I get I get their explanations. I get why they feel the way that they do, and it's like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, I like this. And in the end of the day, all it really took was Ilsa to explain and Rick kind of being like, Ooh, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now. Yeah, just, you know, let her talk, I guess. Is that the, that's the lesson? <laughs> let the other person talk and listen to them. Maybe, <laughs> maybe be in a position where you can listen to them. Don't drink an entire bottle's worth of gin before you, you know they're coming to visit you. <laughs> if you're doing that in real life, if you're in a movie... No, you got to say some dumb shit. It, it's more entertaining that way. Yeah, you want the the, the tug of war, you know. Yeah, you want it, that. yes, but yes. That's what makes it. That's what makes the movie. But in yeah. in real life, you know, man, if you had just listened to her, maybe they would have gotten away with it. But then the Nazi wouldn't have died. 
but exactly we want the nazis to die (laughs) now i'm glad you highlighted the performances because i think they're really key they are definitely doing a lot to elevate the 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 screenplay which is which i i still think is solid but definitely has some pitfalls yes but the performances do a lot to lift it even characters that are very like secondary still Mm -hmm. shine because of the performances right like the russian bartender the pickpocket Right, I love like the he's, pickpocket. He's, he's like in two scenes, but the way he delivers his lines, the way he seems so concerned for the people, like be careful. There's a lot of people out here in Casablanca who are looking to steal. <laughs> Just the, the way they carry themselves. Yeah, I, I feel like it's something that doesn't really add a lot to the story, but it's something that's very entertaining. It's like a great yes. transition thing. It it also kind of sets the place that is Casablanca, how everyone's kind of out for themselves. Even the guy that's like pretending to look out for you, which I guess you could say is Captain Reynolds. You know, he's supposed to maintain order, but like he's a corrupt official. He's only looking out for himself. And it it kind of also adds to the the suspension of like, what's Rick going to do? Is he going to steal from these people or is he going to be the good guy? Like, I feel like, you know, he's going to do the right thing because of how he helps the, the refugee couple. But there's still kind of a like hesitation there yeah like i was i was i knew the ending of the movie and i'm kind of like watching it vicariously through leanna's perspective and she's like rick's an asshole i can't believe he's gonna do this and i'm like you really think he's gonna do this (laughs) even though everything is suggesting that he's he will make the right decision at the end there's still that hesitation yeah and maybe it's because of that that pickpocket character it's a little bit of spice thrown in there well, it's. I think it's because of everybody, right? Yeah. On some on some level, I mean, you want to talk about characters and performance. Everyone's kind of giving you a sense that they're not being completely honest. Mm-hmm. That everyone has their own angles, their own perspective, their, their own backstory. Even Ilsa for leaving Rick, she had very good reason to leave Rick in Paris, but she never explained it. She never felt the need to, right? Because it just hurt him. So she did what she had to do. The pickpocket does what he has to do. Captain Renault's doing what he has to do. Ferrari, Ugarte, Yvonne, like they all do. And in that yeah. sense, having all these different characters wanting all these different things in Casablanca during this period in time, it makes things kind of uncertain. And hindsight's 2020. We're like, okay, obviously Rick's going to do the right thing. But watching it, you're kind of like, what does Rick think? <laughs> what does Rick think is the right thing to do? Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't like, okay, well the good thing, the right thing would be to do this and this and this. But does Rick know that? And at the very <laughs> end, it's like, Oh, okay. He did. Boom. Yeah. And, and part of that hesitation also comes from just the way Humphrey Bogart plays it. He is a man that is super sad, bitter. And he wants to get back to the good old days. And yeah, there's, like the when Ugarte gets arrested, Ugarte's like, "Help me, Rick! Help me!" And Rick is just like watching this happen. And then some other patron comes by and is like, "Man, I'd hate to be your friend." It kind of paints Rick to be like this guy who doesn't care, and it it uh, it all works together for the ending. I think yeah. just all around well put together film. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing that I, I liked was the use of the song as oh, the time music? goes by. Well, the music in general, but like specifically as time goes by, it when before Sam even plays it, she asks she asks Ilsa asks Sam to play it it 
Sam, you know what I want to hear. So it already kind of elevates the importance of the song before he plays it and his, his like reluctance to play it. So, you know, it's a significant song and then they play, they play it, you know, and it's a, it's a good song, a good cover of the song. And you hear it throughout the score too. Like it yes. becomes part of the score, which is, I love when movies do that. They do that in, uh, the most recently that I can think of is the Jordan Peele film us. It, I got five on it becomes a part of the film score. Even if you don't consciously know that and recognize it, you still get that feeling. And I, I, I feel like that helps hit those emotional beats, hearing that song in a different format, knowing that it's something that's uh, tragic and nostalgic, just hearing that throughout the movie after that point. Oh, it's so good. I love it. Yeah, the song fits really well. And actually, that was very intentional. So the movie was scored by Max Steiner, right? Mm-hmm. Famous composer. He's done a lot of cool stuff. He did the original King Kong, the 1933 version. Little Ooh. Women, the Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Huge classic. So this man's been working for a long time, right? And he, uh, from the behind-the-scenes stories, he did not like the song. Oh, what? He didn't like the song. But it was baked into the script, and he was recommending them to reshoot scenes in order to get rid of the song. (laughs) But they couldn't, because Ingrid Bergman had already cut her hair for the next film that she was filming. So they couldn't go back, because she says the title at one point. Like, we we either get her to film it again, or it stays in the film. And because she had cut her hair, they couldn't go back, so they said, all right. He goes back to the drawing board, and what he decides to do is incorporate some of the melodies and some of the notes from the song into the actual score. He incorporates it and it becomes like the two are like something that you said in scream that I really liked a lot was they're in conversation. The score and Mm. the music were like tied and in conversation with each other. And he kind of took elements of the song incorporated with the score. And that that's why it gives you that rich feeling, right? That's why it feels like the song's a lot bigger than just, the few times that Sam plays it, there's like a symbolic meaning behind it. There's like a theme behind it. And that's not just because of what it means to the characters. It's what it means to the actual film as a whole, the score, the music, right? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That is really cool. I like that this guy kind of, you know, he tried everything to get rid of the song, which I don't know why he, <laughs> I don't know why he didn't like it, but he probably has his own reasons. That's kind of a running theme in the movie. Like a lot of people were like, why are you doing that? That's dumb. We shouldn't yeah. do that. A lot of people didn't like making the movie. <laughs> but but I, but I like that pivot. That's how you know yeah. you're a professional. That's how mm-hmm. you're like, all right, we're going to make this work. I'm going to make this work for better or worse. Because I yeah. could have very easily seen him be like, eh, you know what? I'm not really interested. I don't know if he could back in the time because this was during the Hollywood age. Like this was when you had contracts and stuff. So maybe mm-hmm. he was forced to. But the fact that he still made it work speaks to kind of his work as a composer. Man, that's that's incredible. I love that. He knew exactly what he was doing, so... Yeah, maybe if he was gritting his teeth while doing it. <laughs> he might have been, but it worked out in the end. Um, I wanted to talk about two things. The cinematography and the editing. And the sets. Okay. Really quickly, the sets. This movie has a level of artificiality when it comes to the sets. Mm-hmm. The movie was shot in Burbank and Van Nuys Airport. And most of the sets were actually, like, repurposed from other movies. 
Because this, this, <laughs> this is when the war was happening. So there was like oh, a restriction yeah. on the resources that you could use. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't really build that many sets. So Warners was just like, all right, we'll just recycle them from other productions. <laughs> and there is a level of artificiality with the sets. But, you know, that artificiality just kind of lends to that corn that we were talking about. It gives it a theatrical feel to the film, especially considering that this was going to be a play or originally written as a play. Mm-hmm. It kind of just works really well with it, right? Like, yeah. they're not really going for realism. They're going for staging. They're going for, like, sets that could very quickly communicate what's happening there instead right. of, like, actual realism. Yeah. And it lends it lends some of that melodrama to the film. And also, I don't think they, they go to a lot of like crazy places. I feel like most of the movie takes place in Rick's or in an office somewhere that we're told is in Morocco. <laughs> yeah. Well, few offices, Rick's bar, some hotel rooms, and some exteriors. And the airport. That's, you know, oh, that's the like airport. six... Oh, the airport's like that. I love the airport. The fog and everything with their, their hats iconic the costumes the hat yeah, yeah the hats the, <laughs> the coats it's really cool yeah however they actually didn't film they filmed a few exteriors at van nuys but not the entire scene that was actually like a background and they had to like put a tiny plane and the workers in the background are actually <laughs> little people oh. because they couldn't they couldn't be they couldn't film at the airport during nighttime because i guess during the war there was like certain restrictions with that as well oh wow because the film was made during world war ii the production was not allowed to film at an airport after dark for security reasons instead it used a soundstage with a small cardboard cutout airplane and forced perspective to give the illusion that the plane was full size they used little people to portray the crew preparing the plane for takeoff wow yeah years later the same technique was used in alien in the scene where the crew discovers the dead space jockey with director Ridley Scott's son and some of his friends in scaled-down spacesuits. What? What? Yeah. You got Casablanca, Alien, and Star Wars giving work for little people. That's great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the cinematography because it's really beautiful. Now, this movie is in black and white, which, I mean, I had the same impression where I was like, man, that's obviously boring, right? Mm -hmm. Being in black and white. But the movie looks beautiful, and it's very beautifully lit. And oh, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of things like the, you mentioned earlier, the way they lit Ingrid Bergman, mm-hmm. like with that soft lighting. Yeah, like she's she looks immaculate, looks beautiful. They use like diffusion filters on the camera to like soften her skin and everything. They lit her like three point like she's a model. Beautiful. Uh-huh. But some of the other decisions that they made were really interesting, like with uh, Humphrey Bogart. He's not as nicely lit because he's a rugged man. But there are a lot of scenes where he's intentionally lit like half light, half in the dark to kind of oh, maybe to portray kind of tell some... that that story of him not fully being a good guy, kind of shady, kind of in between places. Yeah, like that, you know, like that ambiguity. He's like, yeah, you can see how sad he is on one side, but maybe on the other side, he's like really pissed and angry. <laughs> and it lends to that neo, like, or not neo, it lends to that noir aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. Of like the the rough detective who has a bad past, and but he can't admit how he really feels, you know? Yeah. And if you look at Victor Laszlo, like he's lit very straightforward, right? Like 
even lighting, he lacks that ambiguity. He's a good guy. Yeah. He's a he's, good guy. He's like a leader. The way he's lit, like, is very, like, not as beautiful as Ingrid because he's a man, you know? He, he can't have <laughs> soft lighting. But <sighs> he's he's lit like a leader. Uh-huh. And I thought those were really interesting. Those are three different lighting techniques to portray the three leads. Um, and obviously, it doesn't carry throughout the entire film, but it was a decision that they took for key moments, like when right. Rick's at the bar. Yeah. And some of the dude, the, dude the way that, that that scene is lit, that scene is is lit when he's drinking with Sam. He's like by beautiful. himself, and the way uh, Ilsa opens the door. Like yes, a- <laughs> I'm so happy you mentioned that. Uh, she she looks like she's like in a different world almost. Well, here's the beautiful thing about that. So for people who haven't seen the film, there's like a searchlight, a spotlight that's kind of. Oh, that's, that's really right. High. They set up the spotlight earlier in the film. Boy, you are. Oh, my God. This is why I love you, Austin, because you're at the <laughs> same page as me. Because, look, for people who don't know, there's a spotlight very high up in a building in Casablanca. It's like a searchlight, and it's like moving over Casablanca. And we've seen this light multiple times. There's a shot of the spotlight at the top of the building, and it's like hovering over Rick's. And there are multiple times where we see that uh-huh. light kind of pass through the front door. In other scenes. And then Rick sees Ilsa, she leaves, he's sulking in the dark, Sam plays him the song, and all the gin joints and all the, play it for me, you know? <laughs> and then as Rick is sulking, we see that spotlight in the background, Kaisen passing from left to right, from screen left to, to right. And then when he's like, when Sam's like, you need to stop, boss, Ilsa <laughs> opens the door as the spotlight is passing by her and it just lits her like a... Like an angel, almost like the light of mm-hmm. God, just standing behind her. You know, it was, <laughs> it was just, it was beautiful though. It looked good, it, and that's what I'm yeah. talking about. They set up the light early on, so you, so you know where that light source is coming from. Yeah, but it just the timing of it too, and it lends to that theatricality of mm-hmm. like this is a motherfucking movie. You're not seeing yeah. something that's set in real life. You're seeing we're in here manipulating everything so you could get the most extreme beautiful version of this scene and when that light passes behind her she's so beautifully lit with like her outfit also being white kind of bouncing the light it just it looks gorgeous yeah it's when i feel like that's not something that a lot of uh big movies do now anymore is to like use light to help you tell your story and tell things about about your characters they probably put the searchlight in the movie and knew exactly what scene they were going to use it for maybe i i don't know that like 100 percent sure but i feel like that might be something that they did on purpose for that specific shot you know absolutely and i don't think we do that in a lot of big movies now like we we talked about ant-man on our patreon and then and it's like they didn't use light for anything. <laughs> well, light is just nowadays light is very much used for we need to light things evenly so audiences can tell what's like light so that people can see stuff. Got you. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some movies that do it, but there are um this movie kind of took it to a whole level. It created mm-hmm. this beautiful moment out of a spotlight and this woman walking through the door. And I, I think it it looks beautiful. Um and looks great. Yeah. And that's just one of the things the, the one of the other things is like how the light 
how lights will pierce through the blinds on windows. So it creates like this look of just like them being like confined in these like like these uh, these cages, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it's it's almost like an imposing it, something's imposing on them, which from a story perspective, it's yeah, it's the German occupation is layered. Yeah, Ilsa can't be totally open with Rick because she's married to Laszlo and Laszlo's kind of counting on her. Laszlo's obviously being wanted by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And Rick is in the prison of his own mind. <laughs> <laughs> it just all works together. You know, it all, it's all part of the same thought. Absolutely. Yeah. And it shows that they put effort in. Uh, and lastly, before I move on to the behind the scenes, I just wanted to talk about the editing, which I thought was really brilliant. This movie is an hour and 45 minutes long, but it does not feel that long. No, it does not. And a lot of it is the editing, right? Like how quickly these conversations are paced. Obviously, they're like performed in a certain way, but the editor goes in as well. And it's like, all right, this is the pace that this conversation needs to go. This is how long this conversation uh-huh. needs to go. And it just feels so smooth. There's not too much for me to say on the editing, but I just think it's like, it does a good job of keeping you engaged. You're not looking at your watch and saying, all right, when, when the fuck is this movie over? You're like, Oh cool. We're moving on to the next scene. And also balancing all those different tones. When do you keep a joke? How long should the joke keep on be on screen? How long should we see Rick sulking mm-hmm. before Ilsa walks in? Like those those kind of things are editorial decisions, and I think the editor Owen Marks did a great job. Absolutely. Uh, did you want to maybe talk about things that maybe didn't age well uh, before we go on to like the behind the scenes stuff? The main thing from the behind the scenes stuff that I want to talk about was like context for the Hayes Code. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, boy. Well, there's a few things I wanted to talk about, but there is one big thing revolving around the Hays Code. But before we get into that, we should talk about some of the things that haven't aged well. Okay. I think the only thing that for me hasn't aged that well is goes back to the relationship between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. And that's the age gap. Yes, yes, that is that is the thing that I was going to bring up too. We'll go for it. Well, there's there's a line here's looking at you, kid, which is like, you know, iconic, memorable, but like seeing him say it, and you know, knowing that he's like a lot older than her is kind of like I don't like the way he's saying kid as much anymore, <laughs> you know, because he is older than her, right? And you can kind of like keep it in the back of your mind as you're watching it. Cause like that is, it, that is a thing, you know, I, I looked, I did some math and I believe he is 16 years older than her, like in real life. Yeah. She was 26 and, when she made this movie. Um, I don't know how old Humphrey Bogart is. He's a lot older than her. <laughs> yeah. This man has, has lived a life. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 Okay, so he was born 1899, she's born 1915. So yeah, six like almost 16 years older than her. Significantly older than her, right? Kind of yeah. gross. But for some reason, oh, well, I know why in this movie it bothered me more. But like that is kind of a thing that is normal in movies. Even movies that we've covered uh, recently. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Emmy Rosen was also 17 years Younger yep. than Gerard Butler, but 
I guess the way that Gerard Butler is lit and the way he he aged, right, compared to Humphrey Bogart, doesn't make it seem as bad. I'll say this. I don't know why, but for some reason, these women look older than their age. Mm-hmm. There is that element to it. And I kind of feel the same way with Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman. And don't get at me least, wrong. At least Ingrid Bergman was like a legal adult at 26 when they made this movie. It, exactly. Yeah. And I, I would much prefer, I would have still preferred her. She still be in the film. And I do like Humphrey Bogart. I, I like the chemistry. I like what they bring. I like yeah. the way they act off of each other. Um, it is just one of those things where it's like, man, he is a lot older. The thing is, he does look a lot older too. But the, yes. the, the one line in the movie that I wish they, they just didn't do, they just didn't have it in the movie because it creeps me out, is when he says, With the whole world crumbling, we picked this time to fall in love. Yeah, it's pretty bad timing. Where were you, say, 10 years ago? 10 years ago. Let's see. Yes, I was having a brace put on my teeth. Where were you? looking for a job like why why do you gotta put that in the movie <laughs> yeah i did not like that line either like you, you directly call it out the age gap and it's like I don't, don't do that but you know it's, that was a cringy line i'm not gonna throw the whole movie in the trash because of the one line you know or or even the relationship like we we've said it before the performances are great but by contemporary standards, right, in the year of our Lord, 2023, like, these are <laughs> things that we are looking at nowadays. Like, we are yeah, looking yeah. at diversity, representation. We're looking at the unintended consequences that some of these films might have on certain audiences. And we're looking at the age gap between a lot of actors, right? And I'm not saying you can't have actors that are, like, very, like, that age gap is, it's a great area, because sometimes it's a part of the story that needs to be acknowledged. Okay, I'm totally fine with that. There are films that totally hide behind it, and sometimes it works. Like, fan of the opera, you know? Emmy doesn't look 17 to me. Now, she is, and that does create an issue, but in my head, when I'm watching the film, I'm not thinking of a 17-year-old falling in love with a 30-something-year-old. I I don't really see it that way, mm-hmm. right? Um. And that's kind of how I see it with this one as well. But it is still something that is still there, especially that line of dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's puts the it line. Out there. Mm-hmm. And it was weird because watching, I'm like, ew, like, <laughs> ooh, what were you doing? I was getting braces. Like, oh, my God. Like, bro. Yeah, because especially because they're talking about how things like the with the Nazi occupation looming. It's like, damn, why couldn't we have met each other 10 years ago? What were you doing 10 years ago? <laughs> yeah it's wrong i mean look both actors are great what's the solution obviously you replace one of them but oh i don't think that's a, a solution maybe like next time you know when you're writing your your romance set in nazi occupied france you you go huh i don't like that line i'm not gonna include it at all yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but for people who have a real real big problem with the age gap the solution would be to replace one of them However, they are both really, really good. So, so I'm good. Like, I'd, I'd keep them, maybe just take out the line. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, honestly, I think that's the part that has not aged well. I think outside yeah. of that, 
there's that one shot of the plane flying over Casablanca in the very beginning. And when it's landing, that do not look good. It looks like a little toy airplane. But like I've said before, oh, yeah. I don't I don't like critiquing movies, visual effects or special effects just because they are limited to what they could do mm-hmm. back in the day. Outside of those two things, I think everything yeah. else has aged pretty well. It, it is a pretty diverse cast, but I don't know if a lot of the people in Morocco looked like they do in the movie. Like I feel like there's a lot of white people in the movie, but I guess yes. it was a French thing. I don't know. Well, and it's also 40s, uh, 1940s Hollywood. Yeah. Like it's going to, and I'll say this, they did get a pretty diverse cast. Like a lot of the people, a lot of the extras were refugees because people Mm -hmm. were leaving Europe. You know, we were into, we were into the war um, when the film was made. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the U.S. had just recently joined the war. So there was still a lot of refugees. Mm -hmm. You know what I found interesting? What? They said that a lot of the Nazis, many of the actors who played the Nazis were, in fact, German Jews who had escaped oh. from Nazi Germany. That was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, wow. Imagine being a German Jew as an extra and you're wearing a Nazi mm-hmm. uniform. Like, that must be really weird. Yeah. I, that's an interesting little factoid. But, like, yeah, the cast is really diverse. The accents are, like, you know, the Russian bartender is Russian. Um, mm-hmm. the German characters were German. Um I'm, you know, you get Sam and, and uh, African American playing a speaking role. You know, he's not a really compelling character, but he does his performance when he sings the song is beautiful. Um, again, I'm not saying the movie is like a testament to diversity and stuff like that. Oh, but it, but it, it is it, like more inter has more of an international cast than you'd expect from a yes. movie of this era. You know, yes. like they probably could have done more back then, but. You know, there's a reason that they didn't. Yeah. I would. Do you want to move into the, the, the haze code part? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's get into the haze code. What is the haze code? I think we talked about the production code or the haze code in the first part of this episode, but I know that some people like listening to the show and maybe don't have all like the film nerd knowledge that we, we have because we made the mistake of studying film in college. (laughs) Uh, And not a mistake. I say that as a joke, mostly. Um, But, you know, today, like when you go to the movies, you'll see a rating on the film. R, PG-13, PG. But before, there was no rating system. And you could go to the movies and see, you know, whatever movie you wanted without having a, a rating attached to it. But that doesn't mean that there were no restrictions at the movie theaters. There were. Uh, it wasn't an anything goes kinds of kind of thing. I looked at the Wikipedia, the history of this, and they, they cite two film history books, The Damon Kimono, Hollywood Censorship and Their Production Code and Hollywood Censored, Morality Codes, Catholics, and the movies. So this is not just someone making something up on Wikipedia. These are from two film history books. Uh, they say... In certain locations in the U.S., films were often edited to comply with local laws regarding on-screen portrayal of violence, sexuality, among, and sexuality, among other topics. This resulted in negative publicity for the studios and decreasing numbers of theater goers who were uninterested in films that were sometimes so severely edited that they were incoherent. 
1929, more than 50% of American moviegoers lived in a location overseen by such a board. So you had states, cities, re regions of the United States that would censor the movies because of the laws there. Now, how could they censor something? Is What about freedom of speech? Well, apparently, there was a Supreme Court case in 1915. Mutual versus Mutual v. Ohio uh, from 1915 that decided the Supreme Court uh, ruled that the still new medium of motion pictures was not a form of expression protected by the First Amendment. So films did not count under the freedom of speech thing. So what that what happens when a Supreme Court decides something, then other states, other places in the government can decide, okay, well, since the Supreme Court said you're not protected, we're going to make all these changes. We're going to have all these rules. And if you don't abide by them, it's illegal to show your movie. And this was actually, this, this Supreme Court decision was upheld until May 26, 1952. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, there's pressure to censor from the government to censor these films, but there's also a public outcry for Hollywood to clean up its act. And I read about some of the, the scandals and stuff, but there's one that just kept coming up, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there's the case of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. By the way, he did not like the nickname Fatty. Um, <laughs> he's not a fan of that name. But maybe somebody out there knows has recognized the name Fatty Arbuckle. So I, you know, I also think it's part of like why he got um, shafted the way he did. Uh, so Arbuckle was a comedy actor of the silent film era. Like he's up there with Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and all them. Uh, and he was known for being like the large guy, you know, who's very agile. You know, I I would guess kind of similar to um, Shrek, and then he passed away. Chris Farley. So I guess kind of like picture someone like that, I guess. He popularized the whole pie in the face gag. Very, you've probably seen someone get pie in the face. You probably have oh, yeah. Roscoe Arbuckle to thank for that. But on September 5th, 1921, he attended a party where aspiring young actress Virginia uh, Rappé suffered a ruptured bladder at this party and died four days later. Now, one camp says Arbuckle saw Rappé in pain and tried to help her. And then another camp said that he sexually assaulted her and his weight caused her bladder to rupture because she was a lot smaller than him. There was a huge media frenzy and over six months and three trials. And eventually he was found not guilty. And the jury, I think, I guess they wrote a letter saying, we apologize for all the stuff that happened to you. You're completely innocent. Uh, the lead witness against him wasn't called to testify because of the, the, the holes in her story or something. I don't know. His ex-wife, you know, who has no reason to like him, showed up in defense, in his defense, right? Ooh. But people saw this story. People saw this guy and were like, he's guilty. He did it. Look at that guy. He's, it's, they, they really made him out to be like this monster. And I, to be honest, I don't know. 
I don't know what happened, but in reality, somebody actually did try to kill his ex-wife when she was going to the courthouse, just for, for testifying, I guess, to try to shoot her. Um, so the public demanded Hollywood take accountability. So what did, what did Hollywood do? They started censoring their movies. <laughs> what? Because of... Jesus. Be- because of Hollywood, people in Hollywood getting involved in scandals and stuff, they decided to censor their movies. Okay. Which is a weird thing, right? Like, wh- why not hold the the people more accountable? Yeah. But you're doing, you're doing, I guess they kind of did that as well. You know, this trial hap- this trial happened, or her death happened in 1921. And then the trial went on for six months. So 1922 was also the year that the Motion Pictures Association, which became the Motion Pictures Producers and Distribution Association, which then became the Motion Pictures Association of America, which is the MPAA, that they're the ones that give all the, the ratings for movies, R, PG-13, all that. Back when they were just the MPA, uh, they were found, founded in 1922 in an attempt to censor the films before the government could and to kind of make the public kind of relax on all the movie stars. Never mind the fact that all the movie stars and producers, they still misbehave. You know, like this didn't, I don't know if this really changed anything or just made people feel like actions were being taken. The association, the MPA, had William H. Hayes as the first president, and he's the guy that the the Hayes Code was informally named after in the mm-hmm. beginning. And they kind of had little to no power because the movie studios didn't really care. Uh, they had this thing called the formula in 1924, the do's and don'ts in 1927. But in the 1930, in 1930, the do's and don'ts were reformed as the production code. And this had the backing of studio executives because back then movie studios, they controlled the making of the movie and how they controlled the theaters that the movies were shown in motherfucking vertical integration. Yes. They controlled all of that. So they, they really wanted people to still come to the movies. They wanted people to stop shooting at their movie stars, ex wives. And they wanted the government to stop censoring their movies because Mm -hmm. as I said before, that was interfering with people wanting to go to the movies. Cause they're like, what the hell, what happened in this movie? So, they came up with this thing called the production code and it wasn't strictly enforced until 1934 when the devout Catholic Joseph Breen became head of the production code administration. And even though it was, it's kind of called the Hayes code, it's really Breen who enforced it. Um, and what did you want to say about Breen? Did you, did you want to give an overview of what Ooh, the code I got a lot like? about Joseph Breen. All right. So listen, the thing about the Hayes Code was that it was written by Martin J. Quigley and Daniel A. Lord, who was one of them was uh, a write a journalist for a trade magazine for ind- uh, independent in- ex- exhibitors, and the other was a Jesuit priest, and they had the backing of the church, right, uh, of the Cardinal George W. Mundelein of Chicago. These were the people that wrote the, the the you know Martin and Daniel were the people who wrote the production the Hayes Code, right, but then. Uh, they had, they had Joseph Bream, who was a devout Catholic, kind of run it. In nineteen thirty three and thirty four, the Catholic Legion of Decency 
<laughs> they were a yeah they were uh <laughs> that's like the lamest superhero group ever <laughs> yeah legion the of national decency Le- the national legion of decency was a catholic group founded in 1934 by archbishop of cincinnati john t mcnicholas was an organization dedicated to identifying objectionable content in motion pictures on behalf of catholic audiences all right so you had these guys along with a number of protestants and women's groups they wanted to boycott films that had anything immoral in them um which might further harm profitability in the film industry so the MPPDA or the MPA that's what they were called back then created a new department called the Production Code Administration the PCA and it was headed by Joseph Breen now you're probably saying who the fuck is Joseph Breen <laughs> and why does this matter for Casablanca we'll Ooh, get there <laughs> we'll get we'll get there we'll get there but this man this man is bad <laughs> Joseph Bream was, he headed up, he, because the Hayes Code had the backing from the studio execs, they, and at, they, since it was enforced in 1934, they started going in on these productions and these films and saying, you can't have this. Bream. Before we get into, into that, we should probably talk about what the Hayes Code looked like. There's a lot of rules here, but to keep it brief. Um, there was a lot of like Catholic and family values that had to be upheld. You couldn't have members of the church being villains at all. Uh, there was no sexually explicit concept content. You had to have crime pay. Like no criminals could be shown in a sympathetic way. They always had to lose. Good guys always had to win. Um, you didn't want anything that promoted bad values it would hurt the moral character of the people that watched the movie no perversions which meant no gay people in your movies uh no lesbian bi trans no no queer characters at all um no swearing or saying offensive things which kind of led to people saying gosh darn because they weren't allowed to say god damn so gosh darn was born (laughs) uh revenge here's just some like weird weirdly specific ones Revenge as a plot point was never to be portrayed in modern times, which is probably why, or maybe because Westerns were so popular. You, you have so many Westerns with the theme of revenge, so that weird clause of in modern times was added. I don't know. It's weird. That that part of it's a little weird. I don't know which came first. <laughs> there is one. There is one. I'm looking at it, right? You've got all of them, but there's one that was really funny. You couldn't have any portrayal of white slavery. Yeah, which I had to look up because this was written in the 30s, almost 100 years ago. What that meant was the was prostitution of, of women because the implication is that a woman would never choose sex work. A white woman would never choose sex work. So that's what that implied. You, you couldn't have prostitution at all, pornography at all, as a plot point. Like there's this movie called, I think, The Big Sleep. I, I could be wrong about that, but it's about a guy uncovering a secret pornography ring. But if you watch the movie, it's so heavily implied, you don't even really know <laughs> what what ring he's busting up. You just know that they're criminals. <laughs> um, the way that murders were shown, they had to be done in a way that would not inspire imitation, which kind of reminds me of our conversation about Scream. Yes. <laughs> 
which yeah, you know, we keep referencing scream a lot in this, in this episode it's on your brain a lot because it's a long ass episode <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, this is another interesting one the history institutions prominent people and citizenry of other nations shall be represented fairly which also it all it meant that you had to portray nazis fairly Mm-hmm. In short, because yeah. there was a film that was, uh, according to this documentary called The Brothers Warner, I guess they were trying to make a film about concentration camps, but they weren't allowed because the PCA was worried about offending the Nazis. I don't know. Well, <laughs> later on, you would have movies that had Nazis as bad guys, right? One, There's one that I wanted to mention that's kind of unrelated, but I don't know, maybe we'll keep it, maybe we won't. Uh, miscegenation which means mixed race couples, mm. they were, you just, they were just not allowed. Like you couldn't yeah, have, no. you can't have a black man with a white woman, white woman, or white man with a black woman. And it might even, that's the way it's written in the thing, like black and white. But there was this movie called the good earth about Chinese farmers. Oh yeah. 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 I remember the good earth where the, the lead actor was played by a white actor in yellow face. Mm-hmm. And Anna Mae Wong, who was a very famous Chinese actress, was rumored to being denied playing the part of the romantic lead because she was Chinese American and he was white, even though he was playing a Chinese guy. (laughs) Fuck you. No, you're kidding. That's that's like that's horseshit. There's debate over it because they specifically say white, oh my God, white and black. And there was, I, I guess, like a minor role in that movie that had a white dude in yellow face and a Asian woman, and they were married. But fuck, not you. the main. Like she was like a main. She was like a big Chinese American actress, and they offered her to her the part to play like the seductress, you know, like the villain character. But she's she. People think that she refused on purpose out of principle because it's like. You're having all these people, all these white people play Chinese parts. But the one role you want to put me in is the part of the villain. No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, you know, people believe different things, you know, I guess. But to me, I feel like that's exactly what happened. You know, they didn't want her up there because they're racist. Yeah. In short, they're just, they're racist. Yeah. Well. There is a lot of racism in Hollywood and it kind of, and it goes mm-hmm. back to Joseph Breen, right? Breen had an influence on a lot of films. For example, in Casablanca, Breen's power to change scripts and scenes angered many writers, directors, and Hollywood moguls. Breen influenced the production of Casablanca, objecting to an explicit reference to Rick and Ilsa having slept together in Paris. Oh, and the film mentioning that Captain Renault exhorted sexual favors from his supplicants. Ultimately, both remain strongly implied in the finished version. Adherence to the code also ruled out any possibility of the film ending with Rick and Ilsa consummating their adulterous love, making inevitable the ending with Rick's noble renunciation, one of Casablanca's most famous scenes. So he went in and sanitized Casablanca. Now, Casablanca is one example, and we're talking about how we like some of the ambiguity. So this didn't ruin Casablanca, but he would go on to do a lot more of this for years. So 
In the years that followed immediately, or in the years that immediately followed the adoption of the code, Breen often sent films back to Hollywood for additional edits, and in some cases simply refused to issue PCA approval for a film to be shown. Um, at the time, the Hayes Code promoted the industry new focus on wholesome films and continued promoting American films on broad, abroad. Breen, strict Catholic guy, the Roman Catholic. National Legion of Decency was on top of Hollywood. They're like, you can't show certain things, right? Hayes, uh, um, Hayes Code had the backing of the studio execs. Now, what's the problem, George? Joseph Breen is the problem. Joseph Breen was anti-Semitic, straight up. He wrote letters in the early 1930s that included phrases like, 95% of these folks are Jews of an Eastern European lineage. They are probably the scum of the scum no. of the earth. This, oh my God. Yeah. That's and stuff like that has placed him in the spotlight of historians' assessments, historians' assessments of the controversy surrounding Hollywood's degree of collaboration with the Nazis throughout the 1930s. Wait, what? Apparently, Hollywood had some connection to the Nazis. People in Hollywood? Not all the way, but very loosely. Or the Nazis were very much in Hollywood. After 1934, he was publicly and forthrightly anti-Semitic. He occasionally collaborated with, I can't say this fucker's name, Georg Gisling, a Nazi representative in Hollywood. He was basically referred to as Hitler's man in Hollywood. Jesus. Gisling was the German foreign office representative in, in Los Angeles and was sometimes referred to as Hitler's Hollywood consul. He was a he had a specific brief to monitor the activities of the studios, and by all accounts, he was extremely diligent and effective in his duties. Nevertheless, later documents revealed that Gislin despised Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party, but he still did what Hitler told him to do. <laughs> now it goes a little bit further. We have Joseph Breen, who obviously collaborated with Gislin because Breen was enacting was pushing the Hayes Code, and Gislin was like keeping track of what these studios were doing and putting out. William Dudley Peely, founder of the anti-Semitic organization, the Silver Legion of America, believed that Jews controlled the movie industry, which is something that people still believe today, which he thought would be the most effective propaganda medium in America during the 1930s. Hence, he applauded the fact that Breen had assumed the power to censor Hollywood, Breen, who also expressed anti-Semitic views, was deeply worried that Jewish filmmakers would try to use Nazi would try to use Nazi mistreatment of Jews during the 1930s as a vehicle for propaganda. He was concerned that Germans would be offended by the harsh depiction of Nazis. He specifically oh warned Hollywood producers to avoid the topic altogether, saying that there is a strong pro-German and anti-Semitic feeling in this country, and while those who are likely to approve in an anti-Hitler pic picture may think well of such an enterprise, they should keep in mind that millions of Americans might think otherwise. Breen claimed that plans to make such pictures were being coordinated through the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, which he claimed was conducted and financed almost entirely by Jews. Breen pressured Metro-Goldwyn-Major, MGM, to drop plans to film Sinclair Lewis's best-selling anti-fascist novel, It Can't Happen Here, after insisting... Oh, my. The irony. Yeah, right. It can't happen here. After insisting on 60 edits with more to follow, 
he also, so MGN had this film and he was like, you can't have this unless you change all of these different things that I'm saying you have to change. He also asked MGM in 1938 to change the villain from Nazis in the adaptation of an anti-Nazi novel, Three Comrades, in order to get away from the suggestion that we are dealing with Nazi violence or terrorism. This dude was essentially a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, he might not be a Nazi, but he likes Nazis and cares about their feelings. So. He is very anti-Semitic. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Dude, and this guy like hides behind this like, oh, I'm I'm about moral morality and decency. And we can't because a big part of the Hayes Code was like the sanctity of marriage must be upheld, right? Like you yeah. can't have people having affairs. You can't yeah, have think, think. The, the women leaving the guy, leaving her husband for another guy. Can't have it. Like that was not that was against the rules. But here you have this man spreading so many theories about the, the Jewish legion and and about uh well you can't have this because it's gonna look bad because as we know most americans are pro-german that's what this dude Jesus. basically said that's, that's most terrible. people are pro-german so i don't want you losing money because you're telling a movie you're, you're you're having a movie uh, about nazis being the bad guys i'm just saying you know we can't we can't show that to them because they're clearly pro-german that's terrible that's, yeah and if, i feel like at at this point this moment in history like the film industry is kind of like looking to like okay we need an out because of all these scandals all these uh the government's going to censor our films like we can't have that we're gonna censor ourselves by having these like conservative morale moral values people be at the head of our self-censorship division but like this is the guy at the center <laughs> of yeah. a nazi sympathizer what Here's the thing, a Nazi sympathizer, and we cannot undermine his influence. Uh, after his death, Variety magazine had a, they wrote a bit about Breen. And they said that Breen was one of the most influential figures in American culture. And that more than any single, single individual, he shaped the moral stature of the American motion picture. The trade magazine went on to say that Breen enforced the PCA code with a potent mix of missionary zeal <laughs> and administrative tenacity. But, uh, yeah. but, but, but they're right. They are right. He was influential in the kind of hot, in the kind of media that we were consuming when he was appointed to enforce the PCA. Liberty magazine wrote in their 1936 appointment of Breen that uh, his position gave him more influence in standardizing world thinking than Mussolini, Hitler, or Stalin. 1936? 1936. This was right when he was, right, like, at the very beginning, when he was when he was getting his job done. Wow. That's insane, though, to even think, mm -hmm. to even be able to compare. I mean, obviously, Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini would go on to be big people. We cannot under understate the fact of how influential this man was. And look, and people still say this about, about Jews today, that they yeah. control the banking system, that they control Hollywood, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I studied Hollywood. I don't even know how much of that is real or not. <laughs> yeah, it's there's, wild. there's a lot of, uh, you know, anti-Semitism runs deep, this deeper than I, than I thought before, because I did not know this guy was, I didn't know he was like this. That's insane. Joseph Breen was an asshole. 
Which I, I think it kind of makes... Because Casablanca is like very anti-fascist, very anti-Nazi, right? Yes. And it's like, it, I feel like it makes this movie more significant because when this movie came out, this came out um, close to when the uh, U.S. invaded Morocco, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes. it feels like a, like a little patriotic thing, but like we're we're past that now right we kind of know more things about our country we we know more things about the state of the world we don't think that you know the united states is like this noble force in the world to protect democracy right that, i feel that like can, that can do no wrong i feel like we 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 some of us have a better understanding of that you know but i i think maybe back then when people saw this movie they you could see rick as like a uh, a metaphor for America, absolutely for, for letting go of their isolationist uh, policies and joining the fight and doing the right thing, right? But I think now, what what we see is much bigger than than a, a sense of national patriotism. It's it's more of a like resisting these people who are clearly evil, you know, and standing against them rather than just standing back and like. You know, I, I don't stick my neck out for nobody. It's not my problem. Why should I do anything? I don't get involved in politics, you know? And, and we kind of see what that, 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 that stance is just kind of allowing them to do whatever they want, allowing the Nazis to get away with everything. This, this whole movie has been interesting because it's a movie about during, set during war times. It's about mm-hmm. refugees. The movie goes out of its way to have a little side story dedicated to refugees. Right, trying to get to trying to get out of Casablanca, and I can't help but think about what people say nowadays, which is like keep your politics out of filmmaking, which I've always thought was bullshit. Mm-hmm. Movies have have and always will be inherently political, one way or another. Yeah, even simple comedies that really don't have nothing to do with the grand scheme of things are probably political in some way. Extent. Like we're. At- a lot of what we do is political. It's it's just like it's such a charged word that like, oh, I don't want any conflict. I don't, I don't want to talk yeah, about Yeah, yeah. And people think when they think of politics, they think of liberals and Republicans. But po- political could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Classism, wars. Identity, economics. Identity, absolutely, yes. There's so many things that could go into it. And I think it's so funny that here you have a film that a lot of people consider one of the greatest films of all time being super political. Like, it's upright about what it's saying. Like, one of the defining moments of this movie is when a bunch of people get together and sing the na- the French an- national the, the French national anthem. That's, like, yeah. one of the biggest moments of this scene, of this movie. Mm-hmm. And people are like, but people nowadays are like, get your politics out of film. They don't belong there. <laughs> but here's why I think that's so stupid, because, number one, movies are inherently political. They always happen. They always will be. Open up a fucking hit, a textbook. <laughs> it's there. But also... Maybe that's what you think, but the people making these films have a different goal, right? Yeah. They have a different aim. And clearly the people who were in charge of pushing the Hayes Code had an agenda. Mm-hmm. It's there. So while you might think, oh, it's not inherently political, it always fucking was. <laughs> it yeah. always was. You were oblivious to it because, well, it's a fun, enjoyable movie. Yeah. And Breen had no problem pushing all these anti-Semitic thoughts up there because because he knew what a lot of people don't want to know is that politics is the name of the game. 
So when you have a movie like Casablanca that is putting that has a backdrop of of of, of war times with refugees being a large part of it, that could create sympathy for them, and it can make the Nazis look bad. He understood that. And he went out of his way to align himself with a lot of people who also thought that way too. Remember, remember what I said. I, it, that wasn't me saying it. That was a quote from William mm-hmm. William Dudley Peely. He thought uh, um, William Dudley Peely believed that Jews controlled the movie industry, which was the most effective propaganda media in America during the 1930s. And you want your politics out of movies. I just don't. It makes me angry. You know, and like, look, I think people use that Mm -hmm. as a shorthand, right? I think people use it as a shorthand Mm -hmm. to say, I don't want something. I don't want to see a gay person on screen. I don't want to see someone trans on screen. Right. That's what they say by politics. Don't shove your liberal agenda down my throat. (laughs) I mean, that's that's what people say. Yeah. Mm hmm. But I don't. Th- I, I just don't think that they, they understand, or I'm just. I don't know if they're familiar with how the system has been manipulated before and in the past. And it kind of continues to be. Yeah, and look, I, look. To a certain extent, I see what they're saying, right? I don't need every movie to shove good morals down my throat, or you know, like I, like I understand. Sometimes you just want to turn your brain off and just watch like, just like a dumb movie. Like hot rod, right? <laughs> I get that. I understand that. I, I to a certain extent, I agree. But, but to just say any time any movie has any sort of representation being political, it's just like, yeah, okay, it is. What's wrong with that? People have been using politics, have been putting politics in films for fucking ever since since the good old yeah. days of of no sound, black and white photography. When people would just go out and film mm-hmm. un- uh, workers leaving a factory, that was political. You know, I just. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. my goodness. I just, I, just, I hate that argument. It's such a bullshit excuse. And when I saw this and I saw the work that Joseph Brin was doing and the way he was pushing the Hays Code and the fact that the Hays Code was written by people in the, by, that were very predominantly Catholic. I don't think that like even the majority of Americans were Catholic. Like, I, I don't. Yeah, it's it's mostly Christian, it's, right? It's not a huge population. Protestant, I, I think. But yeah, like, y- y- you know what I mean? Absolutely. Ay, Dios mio. Mm-hmm. It's just reading it. It's like the, the type of com- media that we consume is important. The kind of the, the kind of images that we put up there are important. And to say that you want the politics out of the way, it's just a lazy excuse for just not wanting to see two dudes kiss or two women kiss <laughs> or yeah. even a black guy with a white woman or vice versa. I just, I don't, I, I just, I don't get it. You know, it's so wild. Yeah. And here you have a, we, and, and two, three of the films that we've talked about on this podcast that people, that people say are like highly regarded, like some of the most influential films of all time, Three of them that I could think of right now. What are they? This this movie, Casablanca, The Godfather, and It's a Wonderful Life are all inherently political. One is about the wartime effort and refugees. The other one is about Italian immigrants. And the third one is about communism. <laughs> Get the well, fuck it- out of here. 
I'm sorry, but this just this upset me so much. And the fact that Joseph Breen got away with it for a long time and that you had these leaders of anti-Semitic organizations cheering these guys on and nobody watched it or listened. Well, maybe they maybe they did. And the movies like Casablanca was was their way of fighting back. I guess. And, 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 and they lost power eventually. Right. The yeah, studios and- kind of woke up. It's like, hey, this isn't really doing that great. Like or like people are more OK with seeing sex on screen. Fuck. Fuck you. And I mean, yeah, people, these people disappeared. Joseph Breen left. He was like, oh, I'm overworked. I'm tired. He just <laughs> lost power. There were people who found a way to work around the Hayes Code. They weren't yeah. able to push it as much. So like to, to see how the Hayes Code worked and how like the way that you had to portray marriage and the way you couldn't offend other people's nations, mostly, you know, people who had a lot of power. Like, they didn't care about offending other nations by making white people play their parts, but they they cared about offending the people with a lot of power. And the way that this movie uh, makes the the effort in fighting back, you know, regimes like the like the the Third Reich, like the way it it portrays that, it's it makes that noble you know victor laszlo is a good guy because he fights against the nazis that's pretty much all we know about him is that he fights nazis and he will do it even if it's just singing a song louder than the nazis at the bar you know yeah it's and and you know a lot of filmmakers made movies in resistance to the hayes code uh and they got made and those are the movies that are remembered you know and, and look, like I was saying before, time decides who wins, right? Like the time decides who are the real victors and who are not. And Casablanca is a winner. You have a movie that cries the Nazis as best as it could have back in the time, in the, in the era that it was filmed in, but it still holds up. And I've and the message still holds up, which is you you can't just sit back. And let this stuff happen. You need to join the fight. And it's overt about it. And it's witty. And it's clever. And it's romantic. And it's awesome. It is awesome. I do. I feel like we should. Maybe we should eventually do The Great Dictator. The Charlie Chaplin film. Because that was another one that I remember being explicitly anti-Nazi. I'm kind of. I want to know what it was like making that movie when you had someone yeah. like Breen in the production codes office. I, that would be a good movie to talk about. I think that we net, we definitely need to come back to this era of the Hayes Code. There's a, there's a lot to it. It's a, it is a large chunk of American history um, when it comes mm-hmm. to the film industry. It's a, it's big. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're going to be revisiting this from time to time. Um, yeah. But, we should make an effort to, to come back because there's a lot of – interesting stuff here that yeah i don't know I, I feel like learning about some of this stuff and seeing oh this is actually kind of still happening right now like to this day you have gay characters or, or queer c- characters that are kind of like pushed off to the side they're not really shown in a prominent way they're just kind of there to like make a certain camp happy but remove it when you did distribute the movie somewhere else you know, it's Ooh, yeah. It's something that is still happening, you know. Oh, very and very much so. And I, I, a lot I, of people I, are are like trained to like see it and point it out and be like, get your politics out of my 
You know, it's like well, it's the it's the politics that they don't agree with. Because when it was about Nazis, we're fine with it. We're fine with seeing Nazis get the shit out of, uh, beat out of them. You know, sometimes. <laughs> I don't know about the day. Like I, I feel like but people, people are fine with seeing Nazis get the shit beat out of them. Um, so some people are fine with that kind of politics, you know, very basic stuff. But oh, you got a gay character on screen. Oh, now you're making me drink the liberal Kool-Aid. Yeah, it, it like that visceral reaction is like alarming because it's it's happening throughout the the country like there's those laws against like the the drag shows and everything oh yeah like and and a lot of those those transphobes have they're nazis they're nazi sympathizers and jk Rowling is retweeting them yeah it's It's wild it's crazy like you it's it's almost like not very much has changed progress has been made but it's it's it feels very circular like, it feels like we never really get through and finish a certain topic. We don't agree and move on. It's like we always come back to it, mm-hmm. whether it's now or 20 years from now. I, I mean, the conversation around uh, gay people in Hollywood has always been a thing. It's always mm-hmm. been a thing. Uh, we didn't have them for that. You couldn't be gay for a while if you were. You were a super supporting character. And then in the 70s, 60s and 70s. We were way more open about it. And then there's a time period where it, it was uncool to be gay. You know, like, oh, if you're the gay character, you're like the sissy who dies early on or whatever. And then now we're having a resurgence where, hey, you're having your gay leads, uh, gay rom-coms. And it's just I mean, that's a I think it's cyclical. Now, again, I'm not a film historian, so I could be off, but it, it feels cyclical, you know? It mm. feels like this is just something that we're not going to get through, but we're somehow making progress. Unless maybe we have more people, you know, do do the right thing, like Rick, I guess. If yeah. we want to end this on like a more hopeful note. And yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this movie is pretty hopeful and does leave me feeling good. Yeah. And then I'm kind of like kind of inspired, I guess, to like not give up. No, no, I think it's, I think it does a good job of that. And I mean, I got, I got angry when I was researching Joseph Breen, but the movie left me feeling hopeful. It left me Mm -hmm. feeling good. Um, we've gotten people like Joseph Breen out of the way, but we need to keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah. We have to just keep doing it. Um, there were a few things that I quickly wanted to talk about so that we might not be knowing. There were specific versions of this movie that were shipped out because this is during the wartime they had to you know make certain cuts for the irish and german release of these films in march 19th of 1943 the film was banned in ireland for infringing on the emergency powers order preserving wartime neutrality by portraying bitchy france and nazi germany in a sinister light it was passed with cuts on june 15 1945 uh, the cr- the cuts were made to the dialogue between Rick and Ilsa, referring to their love affair as well. As well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when it came to Germany, Warner Brothers released a heavily edited version of Casablanca in 1952, 10 years after the, the film released. All scenes with Nazis were removed, along with, the, <laughs> with most references to World War II. Important plot points were altered when dialogue was dubbed into German. Victor Laszlo was no longer a resistance fighter who escaped from Nazi concentration camps. Camp 
Instead, he became a Norwegian atomic physicist what? who was being pursued by Interpol after he broke out of jail. My God. The West German version was 20 minutes shorter than the original <laughs> cut. Oh uh, however, a German version of Casablanca with the original plot was eventually released in 1975. <laughs> 30 years after the movie, 33 years after the movie was released. Yep. <laughs> the motherfucking hoops. Imagine seeing that movie in Germany with like the, the physicist, astrophysicist version, and then watching it again with your kids and being like, oh, this movie's different from what I remember. Yeah. That's hilarious. Uh, uh, there were a couple of other stories. Um, one was that Ronald Reagan was kind of he was being seen as potentially for the role of Rick. Oh, thank God he wasn't there. Well, he Jesus. fought in the war. He fought in the war, so he couldn't even. But I, but the the story went that it was always uh, Humphrey Bogart. He was always going up for the role of Rick. Mm -hmm. uh, George Raft claimed that he was up for the role of Rick, but people denied it, saying that it was always Humphrey Bogart. The interesting thing about George Raft was before casablanca because what really made humphrey bogart a big star was the maltese falcon but up to then he was kind of a supporting character he was always good but he was always like the supporting guy except in a few films where he was the lead mm -hmm. but the roles that he accepted were typically turned down by george raft <laughs> so he was like the we have george raft at home version oh. <laughs> i don't even know who that is maybe i might know if i see a picture of him I'm not too familiar with him, but apparently Casablanca was always meant for Humphrey Bogart, except eventually George Raff said, no, it was for me as well. Dude, what? what did, that but that was like a reputation. But that was a reputation that Humphrey Bogart had, that if you couldn't get George Raff, you go to Humphrey Bogart. And here you have Humphrey okay. Bogart be exceptional in a film. And George Raff was like, yeah, that was for me. Uh huh. And it's That's like, no, it wasn't. Mm. One of the stories was that that they never knew the ending of the film, which yes. turns out to be sort of true. They were rewriting dialogue daily, like which constantly. Is usually, like a red flag, right? Like you're you don't yes, know the ending of your movie and you're already shooting it. Like that is a big red flag. But apparently, that may not be the case. They kind of had a general idea of as how the story was going to end. They were just weren't sure about the specifics. Uh, while rewrites. You had to like write around the whatever Breen said, this is acceptable or this is not acceptable. Yeah, whatever certain the PCA things. said. While rewrites did occur during filming, Elaine Hammertz, who was like a film historian, examined the scripts uh, and he saw that many of the key scenes were shot after Bergman knew how the film would end. Any confusion was, according to critic Roger Ebert, emotional, not factual. Because Ingram Berman said that, oh, I didn't know who I was going to fall in love with, who I wanted to be with. And they were like, eh, just, you know, some change. It, the, the ending was always kind of in sight. It was just how to get there. Yeah. She knew she was going to leave with Laszlo. But emotionally, who does she love? Well, that was always up to debate. And I do think that it's, it's wild that she has love. It's... She has love for both of them, and she's still a sympathetic character. We sympathize with yes, her. Yeah, that is hate true. Her for breaking anyone's heart, because I I feel like a lot of movies will tend to like make one person the bad guy, mm -hmm. right? And and 
we're fine hating them because that's easier. But it's harder to acknowledge that no, of the three people in the movie in the love triangle, no one's at fault. You know, no one's yeah. in the wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's that's actually a really good point. Um, no one's at fault, and we understand that Ilsa loves Ogart, but or Ilsa loves Rick, but we also understand why she's with Laszlo, and it, it's a very strange conclusion emotionally. But I'm not complaining. It's it's a great conclusion, I think. And the, absolutely. And lastly, hmm? no, nah, just repeating myself. It's fine. The last thing that I wanted to talk about was there was a bit of controversy with Casablanca later on. Not exactly Casablanca, but the the process behind it. So it actually had a film colors colorization version of it. Oh, there was a colorized version of it that aired on networks. Um, they like went back in, added color artificially, artificially, and oh. it didn't really do well. I wonder why. Well, people just people thought it was weird. You know, here's this black and white classic and now there's color. You know, I guess it threw people people off. Uh, yeah, um, it's, it's like, why? But I guess like the, the thought is, oh, that way people will see the movie because people are afraid of black and white movies or people don't like black and white movies, which is a mm -hmm. real thing. When the colorized film debuted on WTBS, it was watched by 3 million viewers, not making the top 10 viewed cable shows for the week. Although Jack Matthews of the Los Angeles Times called the finished product state-of-the-art, it was mostly met with negative critical reception. It was briefly available on home video. Gary Edgerton wrote for the uh, Journal of Popular Film and Television, criticized the colorization, stating that Casablanca and color ended up being much blander in appearance and overall much less visually interesting than the 1942 predecessor. Bogart's son, Stefan, said, if you're going to colorize Casablanca, why not put arms on the Venice de Milu, de Milu? which is like a statue that has no arms on it. <laughs> you, you could Google it. It's the Venus de, Mil the Venus de Milo. I believe it's that's how it's pronounced. I don't know. But that's I looked funny. at the picture of the statue and it doesn't have any arms. Okay, I I get it. That's funny. Ah, oh, that's that's a weird thing that people do to like. Oh, let's let's modernize it, and it's it feels like someone should say that that sounds like a bad idea. But I guess they want to get paid, so they'll do it for the. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> but um, I think I think that's about it. That's about all that we have for this part, we should move on to quotes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is the part of the episode where we move on to talk about uh, the quotes of the movie. We don't have a five-star system. Instead, we talk about how we feel about the movie with a quote from the movie. It could be our favorite quote, it could be a quote that made us laugh, or it could be a quote that represents the conversation we just had. George usually goes first, and George usually breaks the rules. Yes, I do. And I am breaking him this week. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes is um, from Rick. I've said it a few times. I'm just going to say it again. Of all the gin joints in all the <laughs> towns and all the world, she walks in a mine. Man, I love it. The way he says it was performed. I felt that way sometimes. So I'm like, man, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, yeah, I, I love it. I, It's beautiful. It's awesome to say. Um. 
But the way I feel, I, look, I love the movie, but this quote from Captain Renault really hit me after I read about Joseph Breen. Mm -hmm. And it's the point at the end of the film when he's decided to align himself with Rick. Mm -hmm. After Rick has killed Major uh, Major Strasser. And it's kind of how I feel. It's from Captain Renault, and he's like, when the police, when the other police people show up, like the people that work for Renault, and he's like, Major Strasser has been shot. Round up the usual suspects. <laughs> I just I just kind of figured Major Major Strauss being Joseph Breed. Breen? Joseph Breed's been shot. Go do what we need to do. But but he's really saying it in order to like he like you, you know what I'm trying to get at, Austin? It's like, it doesn't matter. Isn't he dead? Dude. Isn't he dead? Oh, he is dead. Okay, well. Screw that guy. <laughs> You're just indifference to, to him no longer being a, a contributing part yes, of the film industry. Think, Austin, you know me so well. That's what I, that's what <laughs> I It's the, the indifference of him being dead and the, the police just like, we don't care either. <laughs> well, we just got to do our job. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, I have a quote, but I kind of want to break the rules too because the other one I, I like the same reason you like the other the Humphrey Bogart one, like the way he says it, the the cadence and everything. The one I like is towards the end when he says, "The problems of three little people don't amount to the hill of beans in this crazy world," <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is you know it's a a good quote about like knowing that. You know, you're there's other stuff going on in your in the world outside of the problems of you know everyday stuff. You know, it's a humbling quote. It kind of reminds me of the the pale blue dot quote from Carl Sagan. The Carl Sagan quote where he talks about how like everything that we experience now is like takes place on this little speck in the grand scheme. Like if you paint a portrait of the cosmos, we're just everything that happens happens on like little pale blue dot that you can barely see without the help of a like a microscope, you know. Uh it's mm -hmm. it's a it's a nice nice quote. When hill of beans in this crazy world, like I don't know, it's 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 funny, you know. But it's also pretty pretty good. The other quote I have is um, from Captain Renault because he's like one of the funniest characters in this movie. Even though he's a terrible person, he's he's really funny. <laughs> when uh, Rick points the gun at him and he says, "All right, under the circumstances, I'll sit down," <laughs> and that's how <laughs> I feel about uh, Casablanca and kind of the the general attitude of going to the watch a film from the forties. You know, why why Casablanca? Well. It's significant. It's significant for the historical context um, and the story it tells, and how it still kind of applies today. Like I feel like the the internal struggle of doing the right thing when not doing anything is easier and more beneficial to you. I think that's very relevant. It might be relevant forever. You know, there's always going to be people like uh, Strausser trying to control the world and hurting a lot of people and the in the process and and the way he says it's really funny you know i the, the the quote that i'm interpreting is is like all right under the circumstances i'll sit down and watch casablanca i'll i'll go back and take a look at this part of hollywood this part of filmmaking because it it is pretty interesting i think it's it's worth your time to to go back to casablanca and that's that's it that's a 
two quotes that I, I picked. Nice. All right. I like them. I think this was, was fun revisiting Casablanca. This was George's idea. Uh, so thank you, George, for recommending that we do Casablanca. I had a lot of fun watching this movie and reading about the history of the production code and all that stuff was a pretty enlightening experience. It was. It was really interesting to go back. And I fell in love with this classic again. I think mm. it's great. It's awesome. It's definitely worth the rewatch. Uh, and it was a lot of fun to read about. I got me angry, but I mean, that's that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> to get George angry. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Fuck you. Well, he's, he's, he's mad about the right things, right? Well, sometimes Mostly. I do. Sometimes I get upset about something that doesn't matter but (laughs) this this does matter i think that does this one does matter yeah file Um, this under makes sense valid valid complaints (laughs) um so that's all we have for this episode um if you like the episode if you want to come check us out we're on social media at retrograde at, at retrograde underscore pod on twitter instagram tiktok uh we are on youtube Retrograde podcast. That's three words retrograde and then podcast. Uh, we post a lot of shorts there, like little trailers for the, our episodes. They're really fun and they give us a way to like talk about the movie as you can kind of see what we're talking about because, you know, movies are a visual medium. And we also have a Discord. Just DM us on our socials for access. We don't want to have any bots in there. Certainly not any Nazi bots in there. No Nazis allowed. (laughs) Uh, We have a Patreon. You can come listen to some of our episodes there. We talk about more modern movies. We talk about trending topics in the industry. We're going to be having a sequel speed pitch series. Uh, So if you want to hear what we have to say about a potential Casablanca 2, you know, we'll come up with a pitch in an hour and we'll pitch it to each other it's a lot of fun. Don't expect anything from there to win an Oscar, just to be entertaining. You know, we're, it's, I'm really looking forward to recording those episodes. It's going to be fun. And I know for a fact that I am pushing for a John Wick 4 review when Austin finally Absolutely. watches it. But Absolutely. if you've seen John Wick 4, I'm sure it's going to be up there soon. Join our Patreon to see to hear our thoughts on the film. Spoilers. I really fucking loved it. <laughs> I will probably love it too. Cause I love John Wick movies. Uh, they're, they're, they're great. They're great. It's exactly what we need from like action movies. You know? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so yeah, go head on over to our Patreon and don't worry because these episodes will always be free. So we we're not sure what our next movie will be, but it will be awesome. In, in May, we will be talking about Camelot, which was a request as a birthday request and then we will also be talking about zoo warriors which was also a request on our we're getting a lot of requests that's cool yeah we are i we also have the mask and uh there was another one too but and i know we will be doing the fast and the furious when the next one comes out yeah so we've got We've got a lot of cool movies planned, you guys. A lot of anniversaries, a lot of cool things over at our Patreon and here as well. 
So please follow us for more for more updates. Sure. And also, if you like the episode, review us. Give us a give us a five star oh, rating. Yeah, those reviews or you know word of mouth because like Patreon. Yeah, two two dollars, five dollars a month, fifteen dollars a month. You can do that. But if you you know you don't want to like pay money, you know you're in a tight spot. I understand that. Uh, you can also like just share one of our little trailers to somebody or on your stories or or whatever you know because we want to grow and continue to do this and it's really fun i hope i hope this is fun for for you as as much as it is for for us um but that's all we have for now we'll see you again in two weeks Bye bye